A star-spanning saga of ancient magic and deep science, vividly told by a modern master, says Dave Gibbons. Kelly Sue DeConnick states, the kind of epic you crave, both noun and adjective. And that doesn't even quite capture Liam Sharp's astonishing scope and vision. There's magic in these pages. Matt Fraction calls it jaw-dropping and epic and massive. He also says this is a gorgeous and incredible and massive swing for the stars that declares his ambitions have taken him to some exciting and undiscovered territories. Bravo, congrats, cheers, and exhale. This is glorious. What are they all talking about? Liam Sharp's upcoming six-issue series, Starhenge, from Image Comics. Liam himself says of the series, I wanted to do my own Image comic for 30 years. I wanted to do a Merlin comic for even longer than that. This is a culmination of so many dreams and ambitions of mine finally being realized, and that makes it the most exciting and personal comic project I've ever done. I can't wait to see it on the shelves. It's also been described as a mashup of the Green Knight and Terminator with all the Arthurian legends, time travel, and killer robots that entails, plus Merlin, magic, and mayhem. The first issue debuts in comic shops on July 6th, with final order cut off on June 13th. So now's the time to tell your retailers to order you a copy. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of June 14th, 2022. Got approximately 11 books to talk about. Uh, solid week. None of the big events that are going on. I mean, I guess Shadow War is over. Uh, Trial of Amazons is over. So I guess we still have two events going on, but none of them drop books this week. We still have Flashpoint Beyond, and we still have Dark Crisis, obviously. But neither of those have any books out this week, so a lot of the other stuff, I guess you'll say. Uh, but before we dive into uh, the books for this week, we, we have to give our best wishes and thoughts to Tim Sale, who, according to Jim Lee, tweeted out earlier on Monday of this week that Tim was in the hospital in very poor health. Uh, I feel like, man, we've been losing comic book legends left and right lately, and I certainly hope we don't have to add Tim Sale's name to that list. Uh, I feel like Tim's relatively young. Um, so obviously the things that he's done, especially in collaboration with Jeff Loeb, think about things like uh, all those colored books, you know, like Spider-Man, Red and Blue, Daredevil Yellow, uh, you know, Superman, Man for All Seasons. Uh, probably the most famous book he did was the um, Long Halloween uh, Batman story. So he, he's definitely an iconic artist, sort of a throwback. And uh, again, we wish him, uh, we wish him the best. So uh, what do you think about this week of books, Rocky? I thought it was kind of, uh, it's kind of meh. I mean, it's, it's always a difficult question to answer when, whenever we pose each other that question, because when you have 11 books, it's not to say some weren't, weren't maybe a couple were really good, but uh, this one in particular felt like kind of a meh week, but but there were some, I think there were some standouts that um, 
that are worthy of mention, and we'll we'll definitely give a shout out to those that deserve it. But for the most part, I think I was I was a little bit underwhelmed, and uh, there's a lot of competition out there. But uh, but we'll get into it and to give give viewers the details and listeners the details. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. A lot of competition. That's certainly the case. So let's go ahead and dive in. Batgirl's number seven, part one of two. Bad reputation continues to be written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Robbie Rodriguez is on the art this issue rather than Jorge Corona as it has been before. But I got to be honest, until we were getting ready to do this uh, this review, and I was getting all the credits up on my screen, I didn't even realize that it wasn't. Jorge Corona. That's how similar Robbie Rodriguez's art style is. However, one of the things that Robbie Rodriguez doesn't do is he doesn't put that ink splatter all over the book uh, that Jorge Corona does. And I kind of appreciate that because you could see it on the cover uh, that he does a ton of ink splatter. And I'm just, I'm over, I'm over it at this point. Stop with all the ink splatter. It's not necessary. Um, So the art is solid. It's been solid throughout in terms of storytelling, but again, it's just not an aesthetic that I uh, that I really enjoy. But uh, be that as it may, Robbie Rodriguez is handling the line art for this issue. Rico Renzi does the colors. Becca Carey is on letters. Becca Carey's fantastic. She's uh, she's such a rising star. Um, and uh, I actually had an interview with um, another another creator who Becca Carey is uh, lettering his book as well. It'll be up on Thursday. Uh, and we go into some detail on Becca's talent. So I want to give her uh, a shout out. As far as the story goes, interesting that it's a two-parter. You know, you don't see two, very many two-parters anymore. Everything is six parts, five parts written for the trade and whatnot. Um, so kind of interesting that they're going with two. Clearly, uh, focusing on Seer, we get some information on exactly who Seer is. We saw her show up at the the, the watchtower, clock tower, whatever you want to call it. Uh, last issue, despite the fact that she was responsible for destroying it and had been at odds with Oracle and the Batgirls, seems like she's trying to make amends. And what's the saying? A friend in need is a friend indeed. Uh, and that's certainly what Seer seems to be. You know, she's in over her head, seems to be a little bit of a, I don't want to say spoiled brat because, you know, she grew up with nothing and kind of scrounged around for her te- technology, clearly a genius. But, um, she's not a good person. You know, she, she has that, that bratty personality anyway. Like what, why are you getting involved with the adults? You know, like I don't, I'm not trying to belittle, but she sort of made her bed got herself in over her head by messing around with things that she shouldn't have been messing around with. And now she's in trouble and she's going to the Batgirls. And there's a scene early on. And again, the the Oracle has, you know, created a plan and Hey, we're going to, use her as bait to try to capture the saints who have ex- escaped from police custody. And there's a scene early on where the, the saints have tracked Seer down. They feel betrayed by Seer that they're basically going to wipe her out. And Seer's asking uh, Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane for help. And Stephanie Brown's like, nah, we're not going to help you. Sorry. Turns around and, and walks away. And, and the reason for that, it's all according to Oracle's plan. They want the saints to believe that there's ill will and the Batgirls aren't going to help Seer out so that they can basically track Seer back to the Saints headquarters or whatever. But there was a part of me when I was reading it that really wanted Stephanie Brown to be going, you know what? You did it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. See you later. We're not going to help you. It's your problem. you know. And I know that's not heroic and it's not the right thing to do or whatever. Um, 
but there's a part of me that, you know, that feels that way. Like this, you stuck your nose in where it didn't belong. And oh, if it isn't the consequences of your actions, you know, like learn your lesson. Well, so. you, you make a good point, but it, it, it also flows back to fear state. Uh, the seer throat fear state was clearly displaying psychopathic tendencies. This yeah. is, to me, this feels like reverse storytelling or reverse engineering of a story where we're dealing with somebody that was clearly psychopathic in their tendencies, engaged in, in murderous activities, murdered hundreds of people in her, uh, as far as I'm aware, from fear state. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to, we're supposed to feel sorry for Seer because she had a troubled childhood and she looks like a kid, even though she's got the intellect of an adult. This didn't work for me, but, uh. Anyways, that's <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's a good point. And the only thing I'll say in, in, um, in relation to that is, yeah, she's a kid and obviously kids make poor choices and, and they oftentimes don't, you know, realize the consequences of their actions. That's why you don't, you know, try kids who make poor choices as adults, because, you know, despite the fact that she might be a genius level intelligence, she clearly doesn't have the uh, maturity of, of an adult. So yeah, you want to give her the benefit of the doubt. Certainly she belongs locked up or in some sort of care facility. Uh, cause yeah, despite this, you know, her trying to work with the Batgirls or whatever, she's not doing it out of like some sense of goodness or some sudden understanding of right and wrong. She's doing it out of necessity because she got herself into this situation and now she needs help to get out of it. So yeah, not a character I really enjoy um, or care about. And yeah, this, this is another one where maybe, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't think she's a James Tynan creation, right? Wasn't it another one of the, can't even remember who, who all was involved with first state at this point. So anyway, um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it's okay. At, at least there's a, for whatever reason, there's a portion of this, um, story there's some, something about this issue that makes it feel less adolescent we've we've talked a lot in the past about Batgirls feeling like it feels and looks like it should be aimed towards kids but clearly it's not because there are tons of um adult themes in it uh yeah. and maybe that just goes back to Jorge Corona's art style uh, I'm not really sure I couldn't say but um yeah I mean this I'm I'm coming to accept this title for what it is uh, and I, I feel like this was a little bit of a better issue. Not that it still doesn't have problems, uh, but at least I feel like the story's moving forward. Could I do without this title? 100%. It's not like, oh my God, I must read Batgirls every every month. But I, it, I got to give it credit that it does feel like it's improving. The writers seem to be finding their footing. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, see her as a character. Nah, not for me. Don't care for the character at all. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you can throw her in the trash bin with uh, throw in there next to Clown Hunter. So, yeah. anything to add, Rocky? Yeah, well, I would uh, I would say that this is I would have liked to have uh, this origin for Seer. We learn a lot more about Seer. She basically had a very a, a, a sort of a tropey childhood and sort of dysfunctional childhood, abused by her father. Her uh, and her ultimately her mother left her. Her father left her. She was obscure, abandoned. She. She was an easy to forget child. This is Seer describing her own childhood, and ultimately, uh, she might. Uh, she feels like she she faded away. And and what what I find really interesting here is that uh, when this when the saints 
when the Saints want to get the revenge on Sear because the Sear manipulated the Saints, the Saints into believing that Simon Saint was still alive and giving the orders, but he really wasn't. So the Saints want revenge on Sear while they capture Sear, and of course. Uh, that's that's all kind of a setup by by Oracle and the Batgirls, and they they're following Sear back. And I really like the fact that the Sears head the Sears private headquarters was actually underneath the the Penguins Iceberg Lounge. And what's really great here, and I I, I want to give some credit to Becky Cloonan and to Michael W. Conrad, the writers. I like the fact that they 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 made this a little bit more exciting. They incorporated Nightwing here, Nightwing and Oracle. They go to they go to the gala at the Iceberg Lounge, all undercover, of course. Because ultimately they know what's what's underneath the iceberg lounge is where the is where the saints are doing their machinations, and the, the saints ultimately want to use Seer uh, to manipulate the media again to believe to to convince them that Simon Saint is still around and that the saints are are his lieutenants. So it's kind of a really the the plan doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a really stupid plan. Uh, this this you know it doesn't. I don't believe that Gotham would be made to believe that Simon Saint is still alive. He's been well established as being dead. But but I but at least it's 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 really come into play. And I thought you were being very diplomatic with your words about the art. I thought the art is substantially better. Uh, this felt like a little bit more in tune with the fact that some of the this is adult content. This kid is a kid that has psychopathic tendencies and. You know, it's a very tough call, and I'm glad at least that Stephanie Brown had expressed some reservations about helping this kid, as you bloody well should. Uh, ultimately, they're good people. They're they're the good guys. The bad girls are going to help anybody, no matter how bad, and they do so. But I I'd like to see Stephanie Brown pausing for thought because I certainly did as a reader, and I'm sure you you know I'm not the only one. Uh, you included, and others that will wonder why why this sudden concern about Seer. So. Because uh, she sir, she went from this this powerhouse supervillain, almost elevated in fear state, to being this little kid that we're supposed to feel sorry for. Doesn't quite jive, but I, I kind of like that. Becky Gloon and Michael W. Conrad, they're trying to ride this line between making this comic book almost appear like it's for kids, but yet they're dealing with very adult story sensibilities, uh, adult themes. And so they're writing a very fine line here. And to a certain extent, they are literally the authors, literally of their own misfortune in, in that challenge. But it's, it's a little bit more uh, platable, uh, platable at, at this stage in the game. So this is actually one of my favorite issues yet because it, it actually feels like this feels a little bit more believable and the art really helps. Some of the art here is fantastic. The pages, there's a page here where Barbara Gordon looks absolutely gorgeous approaching the Icebrook Lounge. The coloring, the, color, the the lighting in the background, it looks really good. She looks sexy. She looks beautiful. And uh, when she meets up with Nightwing, there's some really nice scenes here in the background. And, and uh, so it's, this is, I would encourage people that have maybe been avoiding this title because of uh, maybe if you're going to pick it up, I think this would be this is the best issue in my view since issue one. Yeah, I won't I won't argue with that. Uh, it does feel more adult, and yeah, you wonder. You know, we talk about trying to ride that line between is it for younger readers, is it for older readers? I wonder how much that younger hey aim at a younger is editorial. When I talk to Becky and Michael at WonderCon, they talked about it. Yeah, it's it's for adults. Uh, I think that's the tack that they want to take. So I don't know. Maybe it all goes back to Jorge Corona's art and it, how it just it looks sort of juvenile. We've talked <laughs> extensively about the ink splatter. Maybe that's why he puts it on there, try to you know bring some angst into it. I don't I don't know. But anyway, let's move on. The next book we're going to talk about, you know, sort of similar in. <laughs> in this idea of dinosaurs got to be aimed at younger readers, but 
pretty violent. And we talked about the first issue, that same kind of thing. Is it for younger? Is it for older? Who can say? But it's Jurassic League number two. It's written by Juan Gideon and Daniel Warren Johnson. The art is by Juan Gideon. Colors by Mike Spicer. Letters by Farron Delgado. What do you think about the second issue of this? Uh, I like this substantially better than the first one. Uh, at the first one, I had a hard time getting into it because it just feels so 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 just so eclectically different. And and I, I love Daniel Warren Johnson's stylistic art, even though he wasn't technically the artist in the first issue. Uh, you know, uh, Gideon is at least copying his style and to really great effect. But this. This I'm really I really got into this. This issue we, we get more into the meat of the story, and that you know this young this young kid caveman, this young cave boy, is 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 trying to talk and express his gratitude to uh, I guess Batman. And I'm gonna forget the names of these actual characters. They got what what's the Batman character called? They they got dinosaur names. It's yeah, Batsaurus and Supersaurus Bat, and right. Wonder Dawn. I think that's <laughs> yeah. their name. Batsaurus, yeah. But Batsaurus doesn't want anything to do with the kid, although he's protecting him and and Supersaurus. Uh this what I love here is the fast pacing and it's action packed and we get a lot of story. And in and in relatively short period of time, in like twenty two pages, we get a hell of a lot of story here. We we get the Trinity meeting up, ultimately doing battle against Gigantosaurus and I don't know Jokersaurus. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher those names, but uh, I thought this was very well done. The art is really it's 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 visceral, it's action packed, it's fantastic, it's it's gory, it's it's Batosaurus, you know, with this you know trying to understand this this cave boy. They speak different languages. While they end up meeting up with Supersaurus, who's in this big battle with Gigantosaurus and and, and almost like a Bizarrosaurus of some kind, and and Supersaurus gets defeated, but then Batman shows up and they ultimately meet up with the Wonder Woman version, whose name I I forget, but this Wonder is Don. Wonder Don, Wonder yeah, Wonder Don, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, they look like dinosaurs, so they're not they're not attractive looking creatures. Obviously, they're dinosaurs, <laughs> but there's something fun about them. And there's actually seems to be a story here. Each one of them has a story, and of course, we we know the general stories, but we know that there's a backstory from issue one about about I guess Wondersaurus, and then and then with Batosaurus and Supersaurus. Uh, this I'm actually really curious to see where this is going. This is like just this is just like fisticuffs. This is like WWF fisticuffs, and uh, they're they're in battle here. And this is all battle mode. This is like Transformers with dinosaurs on steroids, and it's uh, it's like I said, this was a lot of fun. This was you know I gotta say like uh, the the action packed the the action packed. Pack shit, action pack nature of this it it did put a it did put a smile on my face again it's a little tropey it's i mean it is predictable in in some respects but i mean it's it is fun i actually think that this is the audience that this is made for uh i guess it's me now and uh, i guess if this is definitely all ages this is just playing a lot of fun and i would actually by the end of this second issue i'm now thinking i would love to see this as a cartoon a dc animated cartoon i think this would be awesome it just puts a shit-eating grin on my face what do you think yeah i enjoyed this issue a lot more than the first one as well um again it's, it's still sort of straddling that line between is it for younger is it for older especially when wonder dawn takes her club right up the side of one of the uh i think it's giganta just 
uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating and, and wonderful scene. Um, <laughs> almost a full page splash, uh, when she just swacks Giganta. So, uh, so that part's interesting. I also like the whole idea of, you know, these, these demons or this darkness from coming from underground that has come to, uh, kidnap these humans and obviously the whole analog with uh, with Superman, Super Source, what have you, a being of uh, an alien being, you know, of two worlds and uh, taken in by humans and, and taught their ways and whatnot. He can speak dinosaur. He can speak human. He's kind of the translator for Batman uh, or Bat Source <laughs> or whatever at one point. So I, I like a lot of those ideas. And I found myself thinking, well, man, I'm not necessarily digging the dinosaur aspect of it. Cause that's the part that makes it feel like it's for kids. Maybe if we could remove that, but then the whole story wouldn't work, wouldn't work. It wouldn't make sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole reason that it, it, it is what it is is because they are dinosaurs. So I guess you just have to, you know, take it for what it is. And it does allow for some pretty crazy visuals. Um, so yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, use the right word. It, this is fun. It's lighthearted. You have to take it for what it is. Um, and yeah, I think for somebody around, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, this is a great book to, to get them excited about reading comics. So uh, the art by Juan Gideon, um, I think it's solid. I, I would be curious. I think if Daniel Warren Johnson had done the art, it might be a little more visceral and maybe it would, it would come across as a little darker and maybe they wanted to try to keep the story as lighthearted as, and fun as possible. Um, certainly seems that way with the Mike Spicer color. So I think that's probably the, the choice there. Um, I don't know, maybe Gideon is a little bit quicker than Dan and Warren Johnson. I know Warren Johnson puts a lot of detail in his art, so he's not the, the quickest artist, but ultimately it's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, uh, the second issue definitely improved upon the first. So uh, number two of six, the six issue limited. So more to come. Uh, all right. Up next, I am Batman. We are up to issue number 10 of this. Still written by John Ridley. Christian Ducey is the artist. Rex Locus on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Um, I love this issue. It's my favorite issue yet of the series. I continue to sound like a broken record here. Taking Jace Fox out of Gotham City, getting him out from under the shadow of Bruce Wayne, was the perfect choice to get the series moving, establish Jace as his own character, give him his own story, his own momentum. Um, the fact that he's called Batman again, I'm of two minds, right? Like if you, if you give him his own identity and don't say, you know, why does he have to be a derivative character? Why does this character of color have to be, you know, taking up the mantle of some white guy? Then you have half the people complaining, saying, what, he's not worthy. You can't have a black guy be Batman. He's not worthy. So you create his own identity and give him his own, uh, you know, different identity. That's not Batman. Then you have half the people going, what, he's not worthy of of the, the mantle of Batman. So you, so you can't please all the people all the time, right? It's a, it's an age old problem. Um, that being said, like running around with a bunch of different Batmen, it could be problematic. And we'll talk about that in a second when we get to future state Gotham. Uh, same thing with bat girls, you know, I'm like, how many different bat girls do we need? Like it's, it's starting to become a problem for me. Just give everybody their own damn name or, you know, like in, in fact, if we go to talk about the Tim Drake special, you know, it's, it's that same problem as well. I just wish if you're a different person, unless the old one's dead or, or has retired or has relinquished it to you, then call them something else. Just give them a different name at this point. <laughs> um, but anyway, let me get off my soapbox and talk about the, the actual issue. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, very fast paced. 
We've got Batman basically confronting the mayor, saying, hey, we're not accusing you of anything, but we're saying that Man Ray, the, the victims that he's had are people who have done – people with power who've done terrible things. And if we – if you're hiding something and we and you let us know what that is, that might help us stop him. And the mayor's like, I you know, haven't done anything wrong. Uh, I, you know, I don't know why he's after me. And, and both, you can tell that both Jace Fox and Detective Chubb are sort of skeptical of that. You know, people don't get to be the mayor of New York City without having some skeletons in the closet, but he's not willing to disclose what they are. So why Man Ray's after him, we don't really know. Meanwhile, you have the, uh, the police officers who, I won't go so far as to say they're corrupt, but they definitely are used to taking the law in their own hands. They're definitely more old school. They identified more with the old police chief who uh, liked to break the rules to his benefit, who wasn't a fan of having Jace Fox and Batman working with the New York City Police Department. They're gunning for Man Ray, and in no way are they planning on taking him alive. They want revenge. Uh, they're not. They're not good people. That that you know. There's no other way to put it. So you've got that stuff going on as well, while Man Ray attacks. Uh, the mayor takes out the mayor's security. He's obviously uh, a very good tactician. He plans ahead, not unlike Batman himself. So it leads to this confrontation outside City Hall. Uh, you've got Man Ray there. You've got these corrupt cops there ready to kill him. You've got Jace Fox trying to stop that. And you've got Chubb in the middle. So uh, again, high paced or fast paced, a lot of action. Uh, I really enjoyed the issue. The Christian Ducey art is fantastic. The colors work really, really well. Um, I definitely enjoyed this issue of I Am Batman more than I enjoyed the uh, the June issue of the regular Batman series. So uh, what do you think, Rocky? Are you enjoying it as much as I am? I think you might be muted. There you go. Nope, still can't hear you. Sorry, sorry about that. I, I am I am very much enjoying this issue, and it's really nice to see John Ridley come into his own here because we've been critical of John Ridley. I think when he when he first started on on the Jace Fox uh, Batman character Fear State, I think for a whole slew of reasons, some of it maybe beyond his control, it was hard for a lot of us to get to sort of accept this sort of Jace Fox. And there's a there's a lot of people sort of questioning why 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 Jace Fox? Why do we need a a, a black Batman? Why do we need another bat black? And regardless of, of anything, because we've, we've had so many iterations over the years. Well, uh, you know, I tell you what, there's no such thing as bad stories. There's only bad writers. And John Ridley, this is this is him. He's This is a really good story. He's come into his own. He's finally, I think, really reached a, a part where he truly understands Jace Fox. He's built a, a great mythology for him, a great history for him. He's given him his own city, his own relationships, his own relationships with the police department of New York City. With uh, He's got his own uh, supporting cast. He's got a uh, love interest and yet another potential love interest. Uh, uh, he's got a fan. And he's he's lucky enough to be drawn by Christian Ducey, fantastic artist on this uh, great action sequences. This is a Batman who is flawed. He's not the greatest fighter. He's learning he, as he as he learned here against uh, against the the central villain here, and he's done a really good. This is this is fun. I was looking forward to this issue to see how far he would go, and uh, you know, and and there's a there's a moment here near the end where uh, unfortunately the detective has to take down another cop that was going to use lethal force, 
against uh, what's the bad guy's name again? Man. Man Ray. Man Ray. I, I can never forget that. It's uh, such a odd name. Doesn't look like a Man Ray, but anyways, um, you know, uh, I'm really curious to know more about Man Ray. I don't think we know enough about his motivations, uh, other than the fact that he's just another Looney Tune. I mean, it, it's, it's been said that uh, that uh, Jace Fox tends to attract the, the the loonies, the crazies, to New York City, just like Bruce Wayne as Batman attracts the crazy people to Gotham. So that seems to be uh, just a habit. If you Adopt the name Batman, you can expect to have a crazy rogues gallery. But this is a lot of fun. John Ridley has, I think he's he's earned this. He's he's went through a lot of, uh, he's taken a lot of slack on this character from the beginning. But I, I think for from the beginning of this series, I think it's really, he's really made it his own. Yeah, I, I, and I was trying to, you know, put my finger on what made this issue so great. And I don't want to say that. You know, I, I don't enjoy the character stuff or the family dynamic, you know, the Fox family. Like, I oftentimes have compared I Am Batman to that Fox drama Empire, which has to do with a, a, a black family that is in the music industry. Just because it oftentimes this I Am Batman story has such a soap opera feel with the different relationships between the members of the Fox family. We don't get any of that here. There's no Fox family development or any part of that. So I. You know, I don't want to say that's the reason I liked this so much because there's still character work here. There's some great character work. If you remember a couple of issues ago, Jace Fox got his butt handed to him by Man Ray. Uh, so much so that it took me out of the story. I'm like, man, this guy's supposed to be Batman. He can't even take down this villain. And then, you know, you turn the page and John Ridley immediately addresses that with Jace Fox himself having these doubts. Like, man, I just got my ass handed to me. What am I doing? Um and so when he goes to confront Man Ray this time, there's obviously some some doubt, and um, it it, end, it ends up working, you know, as he overcomes that that doubt that he has, like, hey, is this guy going to defeat me again? So there's there is some good character work here. It just it didn't involve the Fox family themselves. So I don't know. Maybe I just I want the Batman title to be more of a solo title. That certainly hasn't been the case in the regular Batman series for a long time. He's got such a giant supporting cast these days. So. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Wonder Woman number 788, The Villainy of Our Fears, part two. This is also written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, Emmanuel Lupacchino on pencils, Wade Von Garabager handles the inks, Tamara Bonvillain on colors, Pat Barroso on letters. Uh, I have a feeling I know your thoughts on this, Rocky, but let us hear them anyway. <laughs> Well, I, I I hate being so predictable, uh, but uh, let me just give a shout out. There's some I interesting uh, alternate covers uh, that uh, I don't know who the I don't know who the alternate cover artists that are. That one's Paul Pope. Paul Pope. Well, it's different. It's I, I actually like. I wish DC would have more of a variety of cover artists, and it's I actually like that. It, Wonder Woman needs more. I think she gets a little bit cliche. Too many. Too much Jenny Frizen. Too much. Uh, we we've got we've had years of Adam Hughes. We've had years of Jenny Frizen. It's nice to see v more stylistic versions of Wonder Woman on the covers, and I actually I hope they keep that up. So both these covers are actually pretty darn good. But now the the story here, I I don't know what it is with uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Uh, they they struggle with Batgirls, and perhaps I can throw them and uh, give them a pass on Batgirls because they 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 had no control over who the initial artist was, uh, but. But I actually feel that Wonder, the pages of Wonder Woman here with what they're doing with uh, Dr. Psycho, this feels like it's kind of silly as well, like really, really silly. And yet it's a very, very serious topic. And yet it's, it looks like it's being treated 
like a joke, but yet it's kind of siri silly and it's kind of serious. I mean, we have Dr. Cycle here who is selling milk extra. And it's all, anyone who's involved in social media and uh, in the last few years with the toxic social environment, cultural environment that we're in. Milk is associated with white supremacy. And here he is selling milk extra and he's manipulating the masses. And he's, he, uh, Dr. Psycho manipulates things behind the scenes and he has a, in his manifest destiny cult that he's creating, he has all these angry men. We still don't know what Dr. Psycho wants. We still don't know what Dr. Psycho's message is, uh, the message is how he, uh, but uh, Steve Trevor with the help of the diagnostic labs and through Etta Candy, through Checkmate headquarters in Washington, they've, they suspect that he's put something in this milk because this milk product is selling a lot and it's, it, perhaps it's manipulating minds. At least, I mean, I hope it is. The, the issue is called the villainy of our fears. And I mean, we have, oddly enough, we have all kinds of men. We have white men and black men as well protesting called milkmen. I mean, the signs are kind of ridiculous and they're, 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 they're against Wonder Woman. Well, why are you against Wonder Woman? Are you, okay, you just, you don't like women? That's it? Like, what specifically don't you like about Wonder Woman? None of this is really stated. And what really bothers me about that, what, what really bothers me about that is that, is this just blind misogyny? And I guess maybe it is, but I just think that it really, it cheapens it. And I don't like how they play fast and loose with this. Well, I guess, I guess these are just misogynists that they hate women. What? Like, what exactly is their beef? Okay, so then they're being controlled. Something's in there, put something in their milk. But again, what? what's their reasoning? I, I didn't quite get a handle on what. what's the motivation of Dr. Psycho. What is this manifest movement? I, I'm just trying to get a handle on it. Like, it, it just feels so silly. It doesn't, I can't, it, it lacks any degree of verisimilitude. Because if you're going to hint at politics in comics, which is touchy enough in, in today's comic book culture let's be blunt but if you're going to have touch upon this sort of political issues in comic books you know being this unspecific and almost insultingly simplistic i don't know how this really helps the story and wonder woman uh, obviously has issues with dr psycho but but even wonder woman she seems so upset green arrow and superman in the hall of justice they uh you know that the, there's a you know Green Arrow refers to Wonder Woman being a mess, you know, kind of implied he didn't, he acts, he didn't mean to hurt Wonder Woman's feelings, but uh, he implied that this was Wonder Woman's mess because out of the trial of the Amazons, Wonder Woman gets back to the, to the Hall of Justice and there's protests by this manifest destiny cult protesting and they're anti-woman and anti-Wonder Woman. Well, why? And, and it's all a setup so that Dr. Poison can arrive on this scene with her syringe. It's almost like an episode of Super Friends. Well, she arrives and she's walking around with this on her, on her fingertips. She's got like a needle and she, she pricks Steve Trevor and then she'll prick, uh, 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 Siegfried. And it, it, this seems so one dimensional. And Dr. Psycho is so obviously misogynistic. Why is Dr. Psycho following him? Why does she? She's a female villain. Doesn't she have any agency? She doesn't even stand up for herself to Dr. Psycho. This whole thing just seems so crazy. And I, I'm, I'm just trying to, I don't know. It, it just seems 
it just seems so silly to me. Wonder Woman came out of dark death metal looking for a lurking threat. She just saved the multiverse. And now Dr. Psycho's master plan is that he actually thinks people are going to think that Wonder Woman tried to kill him. That, that Wonder Woman has this goal to put down all men on the planet. Like, what, where's this, you know, it just, it just seems so silly. And there's been no build up to this. Uh, the, uh, it's just, in my view anyway, it just seems silly. Um, anyways, I don't want to belabor the point. You could probably guess what I was going to say. I just, I just wish that, uh, I, I don't feel that anything's at stake here. So what if Dr. Psycho, so what if he's a misogynist and he's kind of a jerk? Is that really a villain? Like, I mean, yeah, that's wrong. It's a terrible thing. You know, don't hate women. Okay. I get the message, but what's, what's, is this the bad guy? Is this the bad guy? He's, you know, he, he's selling milk, which is a symbol for white supremacy. He sounds like a self-help guru that's manipulating men into hating women, both white men and black men. So we get mixed signals. He's, he's got milk. And then it's it affects all men. Something's in the milk, and and then at the end the Duke of Deception shows up at the end because the, the real person behind the scenes, the one that's manipulate, we still don't know who's the master manipulator behind all of this. But this master manipulator sends to Doctor Psycho in a coffin of all things, uh, Dolos, the Duke of Deception, and the Duke of Deception in Wonder Woman lore is was often someone who would manipulate minds and what have you, but. Why do you need the Duke of Deception if, you, if you're you already manipulating minds through poison milk? Or it just seems so silly. I mean, Villainy Incorporated, and this is such a silly plot. I mean, this is something that I would read in a really silly plot from the Golden Age version of Wonder Woman. And while it's maybe kind of fun, in this day and age, I was really hoping for a little bit more sophistication and more of a feeling of verisimilitude in this. But I'm, I'm not really getting it. It just feels silly silly and it's making a mockery out of what could be a very serious issue with some interesting themes but they're just made a mockery of but anyways I don't know, that's how i feel but i don't know what do you think yeah i mean the, as far as the motivation first of all i had no i didn't know about the whole milk white supremacy thing i don't know maybe i don't watch enough news oh, that, it goes right back to the 1920s uh, the the use of milk and uh oh yeah and, and in fact in fact milk in 2017 Milk replaced uh, Pepe the Frog as the symbol for uh, white nationalism. In, in yeah, I had, I, yeah, had had absolutely no clue. So that does make a little more sense to me now I, that they that they're using it because yeah, that's obviously the the metaphor that's being made. Yeah, Doctor Psycho hates Wonder Woman, and I guess in his mind she's it's right there in the name. She's she's a woman. She's kind of the epitome of of a strong woman. So yeah, it's, it's never clear to me why he hates her. Uh, it's also really silly that anybody to use your word would, you know, ever basically choose his side over her, you know, somehow he's this big social media star. Like, I don't, I don't get it unless you are really brainwashing people with your milk, but yeah, it's, it does this whole protest for wonder woman does seem to come out of nowhere. And I, I sort of feel like anybody that was, that would be looking at this would say, well, you know, looking at this protest would say, well, these people are idiots for protesting somebody who's helped save the multiverse, you know, many, many times over. So, yeah, it 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 lacks a, a ring of truth. Um, but I, I will say that it does at least sort of focus on a Wonder Woman centric villain, 
Uh, I think that she does need to have her, you know, rogues gallery leveled up. I don't know if this is doing it the right way, uh, but it is reminding us that, yeah, she does have Dr. Psycho as a, uh, a villain who, uh, or a nemesis who, you know, maybe isn't as um, capable as he, <laughs> for some reason, as people seem to think he is. So there's that aspect of it. As far as Eric goes, it's, it's okay. It's not the best Emmanuel uh, Lupacino art I've seen before. Um, it's just not as much detail. Um, and I'm not a big fan of Doctor. As much as I'm, I'm saying, you know, I, I enjoy the fact that we're getting some Wonder Woman specific villains. I'm not a big fan of Doctor Psycho. Maybe that's just because I can't take him seriously. You know, he's a short little troll looking guy um, with these, you know, stupid ideas. So who will end up being the mastermind behind him, man behind the curtain? Uh, maybe Cersei would be my guess. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, Wonder Woman continues to have a lot of potential and maybe not quite live up to uh, all the potential that it has. So anyway, let's move on. Up next, we have no, no Naomi, if I can speak. Naomi, issue number uh, four. This is season two. It continues to be written by Brian Michael Bendis and David F. Walker. Jamal Campbell handles the art and the main cover. Wes Abbott on letters. Jamal obviously colors his own stuff. Uh, again, super fast paced, a lot of action. My biggest complaint, I'll go back. We've, we've, we've talked about this extensively, especially the last time we covered an issue, how the events in this issue take place long before a lot of the events uh, that take place in, in Brian Michael Bennis's Justice League. So early on in the Brian Michael Bennis Justice League, if you recall, Naomi and the Justice League go to her home planet and they confront Zumbato or, or whatever the heck his name is. Um, it, it And if you're not, if you don't understand, if you haven't read that sort of stuff, it may be easy for you to not realize that, hey, th- all these events that are happening in this, in this series – Naomi season two, they happened before that. It's all before that. Uh, Naomi at this point in this issue has not gone back to her own planet. She has not confronted Zumbato herself. So uh, as much as I enjoy this, you got to keep that in the back of your mind that, hey, there's context here. This should have came out, this should have come out two years ago. Uh, and I know Jamal Campbell's not the fastest, although his art is gorgeous and I'm willing to wait for it. Um, and you know, Brian Michael Bennis has a lot of stuff going on as well as, as, as does David F. Walker. And when you have multiple writers, sometimes things don't line up the best, but it, it, it is problematic. We, we have talked about it extensively, how, how Naomi, if DC wants her to be what they want her to be and, and what they're promoting her as she needs to be in a book month in month out her own title to kind of flesh her out. So hopefully that will continue. Uh, the art is, is fantastic. There's, uh, specifically a double page spread as D is relaying his fight with Zumbato. And uh, I thought that page was, was really fantastic. Again, a lot of kinetic art, a lot of action, love the coloring uh, as has been the case throughout the series, a lot of blues and pinks and purples, which really sort of suit the aesthetic that they're going for. So I continue to enjoy this character do I think she's earned where she is? No, not yet, but she's getting there. But again, this series, if it's all about her earning it, and it, it does seem to be that so far because she is becoming more mature and making more wise choices, making better choices, 
learning her powers, becoming more formidable. By the end of the series, I might feel like she's at a place where she should be in the Justice League or could be, you know, um, a junior member of the Justice League. But again, put the cart ahead of the horse, whether it was for scheduling or editorial issues or whatnot. You know, that's beside the point. This should have come out two years ago, but I am enjoying it, especially the Jamal Campbell art. Uh, the guy's art is fantastic. So uh, anything to add to that, Rocky? Well, uh, I can only add my confusion because I, other than you, I mean, I know you interviewed Brian Bennis. Maybe he told you that, but I thought I, it never occurred to me that this was, I thought this was after her Justice League appearances and them going to. No, she says, she says she's never been to the home world. Well, so this has to be. This has to be before because she has been in the home world. Well, uh, no, fair enough. Except there's one major, major problem with that. And that is on the last page when all of the Zambato characters and the villains that they confront during her Justice League adventures appear on the last page. So, and she had never met them before. If she met them for the first time when she was on the Justice League, then how could she have met them before here? Uh, unless... I mean, I guess maybe it's possible or maybe this is just all an illusion or what have you or misdirection, but I'm, I'm confused. I'm confused. And in fact, when I were, you know, but, but I'll, I'll grant you that I don't want to belabor that point because I, I think that, I think it's clear that probably if you're a Naomi fan, you're probably better off just reading Naomi volumes one and volume two and forget about her Justice League stuff. Because this, because it's just going to give you a little bit of a headache and frustrate you. Like I'm kind of frustrated now. Uh, so I, what you said makes sense, and and I acknowledge what what it, that that's what it says in the issue, but it doesn't line up very well. I I think it's no, a little it wonky. It, it is a very little wonky. wonky. Very the art wonky. here. I grant you the art here is fantastic. Campbell on the art is absolutely fantastic. This is really good. Uh, we. Now, there's a couple of things here which – and this is where the continuity gets wonky again. D, who uh, is from Thanagar and he wants to protect Naomi, he goes to he goes to confront Zambato on the world and he ends up getting sent back. And he, and he says – he tells Naomi that he, was bo- that he was born with a blessing and a curse and that I am the one that can remove the curse. What curse is, is, is D talking about? Is he? Is there a curse on Naomi that we're not aware of? What's this curse that he's referring to? That's new. To my knowledge, I was not aware that Naomi was subject to a curse. Certainly, Naomi never mentioned being subject to the curse when she was uh, in her home world on the pages of the Justice League that I recall. But it's it's something uh, to think about. Um, there are moments here that I, I wonder uh, that clearly... Bendis is trying to establish he, – he always tries to have a lot of character moments. He's got character moments between Naomi's parents who uh, – they're Thanagarian and Ranian. So the fact that their opposites attract and Thanagar and Ran Thanagar and are at war. There are two worlds that her are – mom's hum- Her adoptive mom is human. Well, uh, right. She- her, 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 her adoptive stepfather is – or adoptive fathers is yeah from Ran. Ran. So they're they're from yeah. different worlds. Thank you. And right. uh, D is from D is from Thanagar, and that's where Thanagar, the, right. the tension comes in. And D sort of like a, a sort of like a friend of the family, quasi old enemy. But um, in any event, uh, I, I'm not. This is extremely slow paced. It's extremely slow going. Uh, we're at issue four already, and we're now ten issues in. We know we all we know very very little about uh, Naomi's homeworld. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, just as a criticism on page two, 
uh, it describes uh, this is the setup for issue four, and it says when her mentor D disappears, Naomi Naomi. Go- Naomi goes after him, afraid that he has gone to kill Zambato, the monster who kills Naomi's parents and destroyed her birth world. It should be, it's worth noting that Naomi, even as readers in the first volume, we were only told that Zambato killed Naomi's home birth world. We weren't really shown it. We were shown it. We, we were shown a couple of double page spreads with Zambato destroying the world, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't really told. A lot of the drama that lies at the foundation and origins of Naomi's story was told to us. It wasn't shown to us. This has violated the number one cardinal rule of comic book storytelling that I'm not a comic book writer, but it's been said repeatedly. We as fans, we like to be shown stuff, not told. We've been told what Naomi's origin is and the origin of her home world. We really haven't been shown it. And that's the greatest disappointment here. Uh, as much as it's it's okay to get these character moments of Naomi's parents snuggling up and being in you know being sexy with each other and kissy kissy, uh, and Naomi having long protracted conversations with her overweight best friend and uh, all this other jazz, I, I guess this is okay. But as an old time old school reader, and I realize this might not be written for me, I would really like to see a little bit more action. A little bit more. I mean, those character moments, I can imagine them occurring. I don't need to be shown them. Show me the action. Show me the origin. Show me the fun stuff. Show me the... We need... This comic book needs more third acts, like in a movie, the action, as opposed to these uh, long, drawn-out, dialogue-ridden character moments that actually aren't really character moments. They just drag something out. I've said this before. I always get the impression that Bendis is writing a screenplay. I think he's forgotten that Naomi was, was canceled. And uh, and I hate to be cruel, but I'm I'm wondering if maybe this was it. You need action in a comic book, and uh, this we just don't have enough action here. And this this we're at issue four out of six, and I don't. How much can we learn in two issues? I don't think we're going to learn very much, sadly. Well, sadly. I'm I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Uh, as far as action, we we do have the scene with her parents, which provides a lot of context. Um, but I get it. Maybe we could do without it. But after those two pages, the entire issue is action. It's her seeing D. It's her screaming. It's her uh, flying the ambulance. Uh, it's in in the Hall of Justice with D going into cardiac arrest. It's oh. D recounting his battle. That those pages are all action. Uh, and then, like I said, it's oh. the cardiac arrest, and then it's the the people coming to attack. So um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I, yeah. I, I felt like it was way more I mean the most action we've had in a, an issue so far you know maybe you're speaking to the the series overall um well well I but, am but I, I would just add this that this issue ought to have started off in my view we, we didn't need why did we need the the with we wasted half the almost the entire issue was her just taking D to the hospital this issue could have started off in page one with D already in the hospital and talking did we really need what came before her reaction I mean I mean, the last issue ended with D showing up and injured. It could have started off with that. I mean, it to me, if you want to move the, the, the story forward, the superfluous stuff where showing where she's all upset and she's all emotional and everything and just sort of staring at him and all upset and talking to him while he's incoherent and mumbling and saying things. And, 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 and again, the only thing we got from him in this entire issue was, I was born with a blessing and a curse and I am the one that... I am the one that can remove the curse. That's all he says. That's the only clue we get in this entire issue. I mean, at this point, at this pacing, we're going to have to have six volumes to get to get her even onto her homeworld. And 
anyways, I'm, I'm ranting. I apologize. I just, I'm just, I'm personally frustrated and I, I agree with you that something happened here, but I don't view what's happened in this issue as being as substantive as it could be. You, you know what I, I would say to that? You need to stop reading Brian Michael Bendis stuff. You'll be a happier person. <laughs> Despite the fact that we try to cover all the DC stuff, I'm perfectly fine if you stop reading the Bendis stuff. Well, because- I like Joy Operations. I enjoy his Joy Operations. We, we, there's, a, there's action I mean, and this, dialogue this, at the same time there. This is his style. I mean, this is Bendis. This is, this is decompressed storytelling. This is exactly what I expect from Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah. Exactly. Fair enough. So, when, when, you know, in terms of joy operations, I would say the reason that feels like it moves a little faster is because it's not an established world. So, you know, some of what he's doing there is world building that's not necessary here. So maybe that world building is replaced by character moments in, in this, and that makes it feel even slower as opposed to new information you're gaining in joy operations for the world building. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is Brian, this is Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah, of course it's going to take 60 volumes to get the story that's what you expect from a brian michael bendis story at least what i expect so i'm not saying whether that's good or bad i'm just saying it's to be expected uh all right up next we have batman urban legends number 16 a lot of endings here we got three stories that come to a conclusion the batman and zatanna story bound to our will part six of six by writer vita ayala nicolo nicola samedja and hayden sherman are the artists nick filardi on colors steve wands on letters there is one standalone story, Batman and Alfred in Some Things Remain by writer Josh Trujillo. Rosie Campy is the artist. Marisa Louise on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. The conclusion of the Birds of, Tri- Play, Birds of Prey story, Birds of Prey in Memory Lane, part three of three. Shay Grayson is the writer. Serge Acuna artist. Yvonne Placencia on colors. Josh Reed on letters. And then finally, Ace the Bat Hound and Hounded, part six of six from writer Mark Russell. Carl Mostart is the artist, Trish Mulvihill on colors, and Steve Wands on letters. So give us what you got for any or all or some. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, my my favorite uh, my favorite story is the uh, – well, actually, I'm actually critical of all, of all the stories here. But I'm going to start off with the Birds of Prey story uh, because it's the one that I, I find uh, – uh, a little bit frustrating, but it's um, uh, one one of the things that I that's I found interesting about the Birds of Prey story here, and I just want to give the uh, the credit. Uh, it's called P- Part Three of Three of Memory Lane, uh, written by Shay Grayson, art by uh, Sergey uh, Akuna or Akura, and uh, it's it's it, it ends very very abruptly and. And um, it's kind of interesting because um, J- uh, James Tinian gave us a very interesting origin of Miracle Molly, where Miracle Molly, uh, Miracle Molly is, of course, a member of this Birds of Prey, consisting of herself, uh, uh, Lady Shiva, Katana, and this new character called uh, Ghost. And and it ends up that Miracle Molly ends up being revealed as the one who actually was the traitor. She actually betrayed the birds of prey. Miracle Molly actually hired birds of prey. She she actually manipulated events so to get Katana and Lady Shiva. She was the one that actually hired Lady Shiva, or or got the uh, this Latiline character to to uh, to actually retain Lady Shiva to find this uh, to find this character uh, that actually had 
the character that had the cure and because there was this there was this mega there was this meta virus that went around that this that this character this this Latterling character uh actually created and this Latterling character is a lot like Miracle Molly she was someone who befriended uh she was uh ostracized or she was ridiculed and made to feel uh less than by her corporate bosses when she was actually the one to come up with this uh come up with this uh program and it's called memory lane and it helped people remember things in it helped people with their memory and uh in any event she was she felt she was ridiculed and she was befriended by this janitor and she used this janitor this nice guy and she calls she used this uh, she had her janitor friend, I assume the identity of Richard Rowe, and it was Richard Rowe that hired Lady Shiva to find to uh, to find the uh, another character uh, who's uh, s- sorry, who's there's another character. Um, sorry here. Um, Man, uh, in any event, there, there's another character here. I forget her name. Where she act, they've been looking for her from the beginning, and she's actually the one that actually contains that actually has the cure, and uh, that's what it is. And Noah, this character named Noah, contains the cure, and and Miracle Molly has been looking for this Noah character because, uh, well, now that they have the cure, they can. That was really the motive all along. And so what, what's frustrating about this is that Miracle Molly, this, this Ladeline character, has an origin that's practically identical to Miracle Molly. Miracle Molly has, has a connection to this Ladeline character. And I think that's why Miracle Molly helped her because Miracle Molly also knows what it's like to be manipulated and, and put down and, and abused uh, and used by corporate higher-ups. And so Miracle Molly... I wanted to help her out and and did so but unfortunately this in this case just like Miracle Molly I thought was uh, abusive to her own husband in her origin this uh this uh Ladeline character was abusive to her a janitor friend who assumed the identity of Richard Rowe at her request because he was just trying to help her and this issue ends extremely abruptly. Uh, Lady Shiva ends up having to, she manifests new, apparently she's got super healing powers. She, Katana is mortally wounded. Lady Shiva saves Katana's life. And ultimately that's really how it ends. Uh, They never, there's never Lady Shiva and Katana. They talk about how they're going to confront Marika Molly and get even with her. That never happens. It ends extremely abruptly. This feels very rushed. And, I mention it because I was actually enjoying this story. I thought it was very good. I thought that uh, Shay Grayson did a good job of uh, of uh, expanding on Miracle Molly, giving her a friend, and and Miracle Molly is imperfect. She's flawed, and I like that. She's an interesting character, and I like the Slatteline character and how she manipulated her janitor friend. These are flawed characters. Very good. I would have liked to have seen this been been a fourth. Uh, I would have liked to have had a fourth or fifth chapter on this because uh, otherwise. Um, it feels a little bit short. It feels like it's been given short thrift, in in my opinion. Um, the uh, I will say that at the end, if if I had to judge all these stories, the one that if I had to pick 
probably the better. I do like Ace the Hound. The the, the final story where uh, you know hounded hounded the drum part six of six written by Mark Russell, Carl Marster uh, as the artist. Batman f- ends up fighting the bear and he ends up he ends up defeating the the Russian oligarch that essentially well. Uh, ultimate goal was to basically capture Batman and sell Batman off to the to the highest bidder, <laughs> and uh, it's it's visceral. I mean, the Karl Marstar's art is fantastic. He literally fights a bear, but he he doesn't want to kill the bear or hurt the bear. And the action and the blood and this and the and the, it's just so well done. And there, there's a message here with there's a message here about uh, uh, you know cruelty to animals and uh, and and the the. the 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 theme of 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 the little uh, there's a story of that uh, Mark Russell tells scripts about the little sort of like a little drummer boy who who attracts a bear a, a bear uh, an old hunting story where a bear is is wandering off and and the boy just dis- distracts the bear by banging on his drum to bring the so the bear comes back and is ultimately attacked and killed and it ends in much the same way except for the opposite outcome with with, with Batman uh, essentially uh, defeating you know defeating the bear and uh, but his but Ace the Hound comes to his defense helps Batman actually rescues Batman and and even there's a, there's a great confrontation where cuz Ace the Hound is actually used to be Joker's dog and there's a confrontation there where the joke the Joker discovers recognizes the dog and uh there's it's just it's just very well done and Batman rather than let Batman die Ace actually uh rescues uh, Batman manages to pull him up, pull Batman to Safeway down a coal chute and and it's it's just it's a, it's a really nice ending, and I think it's going to make a nice at some point these stories. I think it might make an might make a good collection in a trade because I I think a lot of these stories uh, are deserving of it. Uh, as for the, the the other stories, I'll let you I'll give you comments on these and and that one. Yeah, the first story ultimately I felt like went on too long. We talked a lot about it um, <laughs> previously. So I won't get too much into detail. I did like at the end how it really um, solidifies the special relationship that Bruce and Zatanna have. And I've, I've said it before. I, I like Bruce and Zatanna as a couple more than Bruce and Selena, like infinitely more. Um, so I appreciated that Vil, uh, that Vita brought us that, uh, even though the, the story felt like it dragged a little bit. The second story uh, also <laughs> feels a bit abrupt. Um I don't think it's bad, and I like the agency that it gives Alfred. And, of course, it's a chance to see Alfred back in the DCU, which is always a good thing. Um, but, it, it, yeah, it felt very anticlimactic. I mean, Alfred goes undercover to you know find out why these people are disappearing from the, this uh, assisted living facility. And, you know, it takes, all, it takes them all of 30 seconds once he gets there to figure it out. I, I don't know. It just – it felt a bit rushed, um, even though it, it did uh, – give us a chance to see Alfred. I also thought the art was kind of wonky by Rose Compy, but I, I, um, I'm just not a fan of their style. I, I find time and time again, when I'm looking at this art and I'm like, man, this art just, it, it's wonky. The face, facial features don't look correct. The anatomy uh, perspective doesn't look correct. And I look at who the artist is and it's Rosie Compy. Um, so yeah, it's, it leaves a little bit to be desired. And I think there's some, some basics that need to be gone over there. Uh, I agree with you on the the Birds of Prey story. I, I felt like, 
you know, there's a lot of animosity when this team was put together, the way that Shea Grayson wrote it. But then they seem to come together in issue two, part two. And now issue three, come to find out Miracle Molly's the one that's the betrayer. Uh, it just didn't feel like that suited. I, I was happy that Miracle Molly, I mean, I mean, she was, you know, maybe not even so much an anti-hero in her Batman appearances. She she almost was all the way over to the her- heroic side. And now here, it's, she's leaning more toward the, the villainous side. Maybe that's what DC wanted. Maybe they thought she came across as too heroic in Batman because when she was first introduced, we didn't know what she was going to be, you know, villain, hero, what have you. Um, and I liked that they were leaning her more toward the hero side, even if she had a different perspective um, than a lot of heroes do. And now to have her betray, uh, and it goes back to something that you yourself said, like, okay, maybe she's very uh, sympathetic toward this Laliana character or whatever her name is. Um, And that makes sense because she, like you said, uh, she was mocked by, because she was just an entry level meta engineer and everybody else on the board, you know, were all these uh, males and they didn't give uh, credit to her idea or whatever. Um, And that's something that Miracle Molly herself uh, experienced. But here's the problem I have with it, right? Like I can see that she would be very sympathetic toward Ladeline, but she herself then turns him around and manipulates. And is it men that she's manipulating? You know, because again, there seems to be this anti-misogynistic message from DC this month. No, she she's manipulating her her fellow females. Like, isn't this all about women power, birds of prey, women having agency, whatever? Miracle Molly puts it all over on her female counterparts that's the part that felt incongruous to me right i mean is she's doing this to help out her female friend here but she's doing it at the expense of other females doesn't that go against the message you're trying to say so i don't know it, it didn't it didn't work for me and like you said it felt really rushed and very um i don't want to say convoluted but just very abrupt that's that's the, like the whole thing was and I, and the thing is, the first two parts felt like it was paced pretty well. And I, I, I sort of feel like if you didn't make the story as convoluted in the end as it appeared to be, if you didn't throw in this betrayal of Miracle Molly and, and have to use up space to explain that, if it had just been a straightforward, they go and they confront this Richard Rowe guy and he's the true villain, I think you would have had enough space to do what you needed to do and it wouldn't have felt like so abrupt because yeah. I mean, it, it, it really feels like we're missing every other panel here, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, I well, know. It, well, the, the ghost character on top of the page that I'm showing here, the very final page, she says, we're going to get Noah back. Right. And Katana says, something tells me the only way we're going to fix this mess. Uh, and then, uh, you know, so they've made a concerted effort decision that as a team, they're going to get Noah back. And then at the bottom of the page, it says one week later, and then it has a radio broadcast summarizing summarizing yeah. that Richard Rowe was had an untimely death. So That's they actually yeah. she actually killed. So they actually <laughs> killed the, the her janitor friend, and so they killed the guy that was bef- that was actually a friend of Ladeline. And and then it just ends abruptly. And so now Molly Molly Miracle Molly, you know, we had I had some sympathy for her in Fear State, but now she's. She's absolutely complicit in cold-blooded murder. So this is a definitely a boat shift in my mind. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. The only thing I can think is they were planning on this being a lead into a Birds of Prey series and they decided they weren't going to do a Birds of Prey series. Because, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, and it's not even a whole panel. It's a panel with an inset. I know. The, the, the inset that gives us the, the title and the the, uh, the credits. Mm. It's like, yeah, I mean, she even Ladeline said, you're getting too comfortable taking credit for my work, Mark. He's like, what? This was your idea. This was your idea. Are you crazy? Miracle Molly. No, she's brilliant. Right. I'm brilliant. Let's kill him. One week later. Richard Rose dead. It's like, yeah. I mean, the only, th- the saving grace, I guess you could say, I mean, it, it is some sort of a radio broadcast or whatever we're saying, we're hearing in the wake of Richard Rose untimely death. Maybe they killed Richard Rowe, you know, in terms of like, okay, the identity of Richard Rowe. Mm-hmm. But really when it comes down to it, they didn't kill this janitor who, you know, was friends with them. So I, I don't know. It's messy. It's abrupt. It, it doesn't work. I kind of wish that, you know, after the, I was excited after the f- first issue, first part, I didn't know what to think. Second one, I was like, oh, this would make a, you know, I, I would be interested enough. I think this would make a good series. Let's have another, uh, you know, Birds of Prey series. And now I'm like, man, I'm just sorry I read it in the first place. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say I'm sorry I've read it. I still say I wish that this was a series because I had, I, I think this is a set, kind of a wild card of a team. I actually kind of like it. And I actually like the idea I have. You and I, you and I had our differences of opinion on Miracle Molly. Uh, I kind of like her more on the villain side, anyway. If I'm honest, and so I kind of wish this would be a four or five part Birds of Prey arc, and I would, I would love a Birds of Prey series. Uh, honestly, I think it would. Be I would great. like it after issue two. I would not like it with Miracle <laughs> Molly going all the way over to the villain side, and you know, yeah, yeah that, that's the part that didn't work for me. Uh, the last for the last issue or last story here. Oh, the sorry. Hounded, the hounded drum. Uh, yeah, I don't have that much to add to what you said. I, I think what I liked most about this series uh, or about this story was the most art. Uh, I, I, I like the kind of the sentimentality of it that uh, that Russell brings in terms of comparing humans to animals and talking about, you know, treating animals with respect and whatnot. I, you know, it, yeah, it's a little ham-fisted, but I don't know. It works. It's. I think we need to be reminded of that. And so, even the scenes at the end where Bruce releases the uh, the bear that he fought into the woods, into the uh, Wayne Wooded Reserve, <laughs> that's apparently next to Wayne Manor. I even enjoyed that. The fact that Flash gets the super speed turtle again, I enjoyed that. So, <laughs> yeah, it was it all, all when all said and done, it was a it was a fun series. So, yeah. or or a fun story. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 12, script by Tom Taylor, pencils by Siren Torme and Ruari Coleman. Inks are by Scott Hanna, Ruari Coleman, and Ralph Fernandez, and Siren Torme. So we got f- four people inking this. Maybe that's why the art's so wildly inconsistent. Uh, colors are by Frederico Blee and Matt Herms, and then letters are by Dave Sharp. Uh, Insiders is the name of it. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a rough – just, I mean, the art – not only was the art inconsistent, I felt like it was a very inconsistent pace and and plotted story. But I don't know. Maybe you feel differently. What do you think? Uh, no, I don't feel differently. And, and the first thing I want to say is uh, a couple of comments here. Uh, just on the cover itself, the actual cover A has a, uh, has a great uh, – it, it's a beautiful image – and I'm not sure who the cover artist is, but it Superman, son of Kalal, he looks like a boy. He's drawn. He looks like he could be 14 or 15 years old. If I didn't know better, I think he has eyelashes. Uh, 
Uh, he and he's he's petting his dog. This does not look like a superman. It looks like a superboy. And yeah, that's Travis Moore on that. Travis cover. Moore, beautiful art. Don't get me wrong, but this doesn't look like a superman. And you know, look, we've talked about this before. And you, if you're trying, I mean, the entire one of the one of the challenges that Tom Taylor had when he took on this title, obviously, was you know we had an aged up John Kent who went from seven years old to eighteen. First it was 17, then it was 18. So he became an adult overnight. And now all of a sudden he became a Superboy or a Superman overnight after that. So Tom Taylor had the challenge of really trying to convince us readers that this was a character deserving of the Superman mantle. And he's been working on that. And, you know, the jury is out and readers have had different opinions on it. I think you and I can, I think we generally agree that John Kent has yet to sort of earn the mantle, but he's trying. But it really doesn't help when you're, if you're selling this guy as a Superman, don't draw him looking like a boy, not on the covers. And and again, that's just, it's a nitpick, but I think it's a legitimate one. Uh, but the covers generally, they're, they're okay. I, I don't mind them. As for the, as for the story itself, I have, um, this story consists of, uh, this is um, John Kent, Superman, Along with Jay uh, Nakamura, they are confront. They end up confronting. Uh, um, well, they end up confronting a, a Senator Henderson, a, a member of Congress, with uh, some videotape, uh, whereby they they realize they've 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 this congressman. He's a corrupt congressman who ends up being this congressman is is in fact, um, in fact Henry Bendix. <sighs> It's this feels like very forced storytelling because at the beginning of this part of the part of the issue I have with this series is that Superman Bendis revealed Superman's secret identity to the world because Superman doesn't believe in deception. Then we got John Kent becoming Superman and falls in love with uh, a young man, Jay Nakamura, who is engaged in killing and and uh, terrorism, but for a good cause, for an, a cons- an institution called Truth, uh, which is Wait, a Philly- hold on, hold on a second. When when has Truth killed people? Tr- truth has Truth has members of the Suicide Squad on it, and Truth has well, they've they they showed Truth killing people when when he was leaving the island nation of Gomorrah. You can argue that it was in self defense, but just but but just bear with me for a second. This this is this is the this is the uh, I, I'm going to turn this around. This is a criticism, and I this is leading to the drama of this series, and this is what's leading to the controversy of this title, and they, it, this can be turned into a positive, but it hasn't turned into a positive yet. Where I'm going with this is what what is interesting about this title is that John Kent, John Kent takes pride, literally pride, in. You know, he's opening up about who he is sexually. He kisses his boyfriend live on uh, on a pride parade. Last we reviewed the pride issue and he loves this Jay Nakamura. Great. Unfortunately, Jay is affiliated with Truth. Jay wears a mask. He takes a camcorder with him to interview, to to surprise a, a senator in Congress to interview him. Uh, they have the audacity to ask Lois Lane to come and join their truth initiative. And they're, they're going to go around and they break and they, they go around all over the world, breaking international boundaries to get stories. I mean, this, this is what truth does. And so 
So it's truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. That's what Superman's about. But now truth has taken on a new meaning. And this is the concern I have. Truth now is associated with this, uh, what is essentially an unaffiliated uh, group of young journalists that are glorified YouTubers, not affiliated with, not even affiliated with any country. They have a headquarters basically on a ship. Uh, and th this is problematic. So what happens now is... We have John Kent affiliated with Truth. We have him now uh, upsetting, probably some people upsetting some people's beliefs because of, of his sexuality. And so this is where the drama comes in. We, in this world where there is a toxic political and social cultural landscape, we have, we have John Kent now who has come out. He's bisexual. He's openly in that kind of relationship. He's involved with uh, Jay Nakamura, who even Batman distrusts. And he, this is no wonder uh, uh, President Bendix, John Bendix of, of Gamora, is, is trying to utilize that against them and with great effect. And what happens in this issue is that all those, all that potential for drama, because I think a really good story is there that Tom Taylor introduced, and he didn't shy away from it, and he wasn't afraid to touch upon those political issues, uh, because it creates drama, and that's I say that as a compliment. Unfortunately, I find that the culmination of this uh, uh, has has been wrapped up a little bit too convenient, because the bad guy was sort of centered upon, you know. Rather than stay in the background and continue his machinations, President Bendix ends up being revealed to be this this Senator Henderson in Congress, and so it's quite obvious that very conveniently they have the you know truth. They had a videotape of this senator uh, being on the boat where these uh, uh, being on the boat where these uh, these what, these human traffickers were or these these people that they were using be, because the what Bendis is doing is taking these people and and giving them superpowers and controlling them and trying to create a metahuman network and trying to create a PR campaign against superheroes so what started off on the surface this this was a series that started off on the surface touching upon very hotbed political issues and upset some sensibilities and it's all been sort of like conveniently wrapped up and probably that's for the better uh, I just found it, I just found it very, very interesting, and it's going to be. It, I'm curious to see where it goes with it from here, because at the end, uh, Jason or uh, Jay Nakamura, his identity is revealed because he was he was a guy. He he's a reporter for Truth. John Kent supports Truth. Uh, Lois Lane was asked to be become part of Truth, but he's wearing a mask with a camcorder. And he's, his boy, his identity is revealed. And at the end of this, with Jay Nakamura's identity being now revealed to the world, the world's going to be able to piece together that Jay Nakamura was the same boy, was the same person that was kissing John Kent at that pride parade. And they're going to connect the dots. And so, and the next issue, it says the nightmare begins. And I, I can see this being a nightmare because from a storytelling point of view, and this is where I, I find this interesting, John Kent now, there's going to be a certain portion of the world media, let's face it, that is going to be against him, that, that they're going to worry that he is affiliated with this group uh, whose loyalties are questioned. And, and, and also because of his sexuality, that could be called into, into he, can be, he can face criticism for that as well. And so I think that there is, 
I got to give Tom Taylor some credit here because these are issues that he is. I mean, they're right on they're 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 right on the surface, but they're also underneath the surface of this story as well. And Tom Taylor has managed to kind of avoid dealing directly with them. But anybody who reads this knows that those issues are there. So that's what I find interesting about it, and that's why I find this Superman is very very different than than Clark Kent. This is a Superman, uh, a young Superman who's dealing with stuff head on, and he's just. It seems like he's flying by the seat of his pants, but kudos to him because he's definitely, he's literally putting himself out there, war, you know, who he is. And that, and that, of course, is symbolized by his, uh, his coming out for that pride parade. And I think all this is coming to a head. So this is the Superman mythology right now is more than just Superman revealing his identity to the world as Clark Kent, but his own son now coming out and his affiliation with Jane Nakamura. I see things getting really bad for, uh, for for young John Kent and even his mother Lois Lane uh, might not be able to get him out of it. But uh, what do you think? I think it's a big assumption to make that the Pride special is we're going to see consequences of that in the main series. I'm not saying that somehow somebody won't connect the knots and say, yeah, Jane Nakamura and John Kent are going out. And if this guy was with... Um, with Superman, then yeah, they're working together. But I mean, there's n- there's nothing to say that that you know that, that won't happen. Cle- clearly, the nightmare begins indicates that something bad is is about to happen. Um, as far as truth goes, I see them in, in a completely different light than you do. Um, first of all, in, in escaping, you know that that was wartime. You called them murderers. I you know you you yourself said the argument could be made for self de- defense. So I, you know. But whatever that that's all semantics and and sort of pedantic anyway. I don't I don't necessarily see it that way. I don't think most of the world would see it that way. We're talking about a vocal minority, in my opinion, at least as the politics of this real world exists. If truth were to exist, um, you, know, you call them instead of journalists, glorified YouTubers. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, social media, YouTube, Twitter, what have you, it's the cutting edge of news. It's where you can find news out quicker than any sort of old school, like forget about what journalism used to be that journalism as it used to be, doesn't exist anymore. So I appreciate that what Tom Taylor is trying to do is tell a very modern story because I feel like in terms of sensibility in, in terms of social issues, in terms of just the most modern, accurate reflection of, I don't want to say a, a woke society because that's the wrong word. The whole idea of woke now has this negative connotation, but in terms of the most realistic, accurate depiction of modern society, this is the book, right? Now, whether I want that in my comics is a completely different story, <laughs> completely different story. And the problem that I'm having is the argument could be made that in a lot of ways, DC is the most duplicitous of publishers you know, I would say if you, if you just take it overall nowadays, Marvel is much more conservative than than DC. You know, DC seems to take the lead when it comes to diversity and things like, you know, pride and uh, uh, LGBTQ and social issues and that sort of thing. But at the same time, if you look back at their history, certainly in the Silver Age, going into the Bronze Age, the shoe was on the other foot. And Marvel was the one that was, you know, tackling more real world issues than DC was. 
DC was, you know, the Silver Age was a lot of fantasy stories that didn't have any um, reflection of reality whatsoever. So I find it really interesting. What is the, what is the just average DC fan want? Do they want this much politics, this many issues, this many uh, kind of real world dilemmas where there aren't real answers, you know, like you can understand why people feel the way they do about certain things. You know, you can, that's just their belief. It's how they were raised, you know, marriage is a man and a woman only. And, you know, things like that. Superman can't be a bisexual, you know, like I, I understand, I understand the worry, you know, they feel that it's, you know, eroding the, the fabric of their foundation of how they were raised. I get it. It comes from a place of fear, right? So I totally understand. So if comics are supposed to be escapism uh, and you want to go back and, you know, remember with fondness your days of reading DC when it was something completely different than it is now, yeah, I could see why it would be problematic. Um, so I'm not going to argue, you know, whether that's the way this should be going or not because I think that's a personal preference. What I will say is if you hate that stuff, don't read this comic. Yeah. You know, don't, sure. don't, <laughs> don't, don't hate, read it. Don't spend your money and then complain about it. Because if you don't like those things, then this comic is not for you. And that is perfectly fine. Go read action comics. Cause that's all about Superman and all the ideals that he stands for. And you will, you will like that. You will love it. Great art. Great story. Go read that. Don't read this. You will not like this. This is not for you. So that being said, the issues I had with this particular issue were more to do with technical. I don't think it's paced well. I think it jumps around. Um, I think the art is wildly inconsistent. And again, there's a thousand inkers on it, so you can understand why. Uh, I didn't particularly care for the way Lex Luthor was portrayed. Lex Luthor, again, is supposed to be, what, second smartest, third smartest person in the DCU? Yeah. And Dick Grayson's just going to walk right into his corporate headquarters and plant a bug? Oh, well, they he sweeps for bugs at the end of the night, so we'll just disintegrate the bug before then. What? Lex Luthor has a constant scan that's scanning for bugs. Exactly. You tell me yeah. that's not a thing? That was so <laughs> that was so ridiculous. But again, trying to suit the story and, and what have you. So it, it's little nitpicky things like that where the story's not really working for me. Um, and then as far as Jade Nakamura, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of, and I think I said this before, I'm not a fan of um, John's relationship with Jay, not because Jay's a guy, but because Jay's doesn't come across as particularly competent to me and never has. Like what a dumb mistake to make to phase and go in and remove this little, you know, uh, mind control device and then come out without your mask on. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't care for Jay as, as a character, uh, but not because he has pink hair, uh, but just because I don't think he's a particularly <laughs> intelligent individual, at least not as portrayed by, by Tom Taylor. So uh, yeah, this it, it's so frustrating too, because Nightwing may be the most consistent title at DC. It's, you know, fantastic issue in and issue out. Um, and this one just, it fluctuates wildly. This was one of the, the, one of my least favorite issues of the series so far. And it should not have been, that should not have been the case. It's Superman. It's John Kent. It's crypto. Uh, there's tons of action. It should have been great, but it wasn't. So yeah. Um, 
I'm I'm just ready for something different with Superman at this point. So yeah, anyway. it's uh, we could uh, you, you and I could talk uh, at length about it. There's there's a lot more I could uh, talk about, uh, but we'd be going off on a tangent. But no, it's interesting to hear your comments because I just I do find that there that this is there's so much potentially interesting things that John Kent could be getting into. And I find it, I, I actually like the drama. I like the fact that he's different He's than his father. He's not afraid of, of going out on a limb. And he clearly he clearly is doing that. Uh, I just wish that if, you, if you're going to, I don't know when you deal with social issues like this that are this important, Tom Taylor's, he's kind of going halfway and then pulling back because he has to because he can't quite go all there. But I kind of wish that, well, if you're going to go halfway, I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound, just do it. And so... It's these half measures what Tom Taylor's doing on this title that I wish he would just, you know, uh, just go that extra mile. But I realize that, you know, th- this is a this is a title that that ruffles so many feathers. Uh, and uh, no matter what Tom Taylor writes, it seems, you know, it for this, he's he's not clearly DC is not approaching this character in the same way that 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 they traditionally have approached Superman. This is, they have, they've made up their mind about, about him, John Kent's youth, his, his charisma, his social activism. And that does lead, that does lead to different kinds of stories where you're going to, whether you want it or not, you're going to end up with some political elements in it, whether you like it or not. And like you said, Jace, you know, knowing that going in, you, you probably are advised if you're not a fan of that, then maybe, maybe give this, uh, title uh, a pass by and just pick up action comics. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and and again, I don't. I appreciate that Tom Taylor's doing it. I agree with you that he could be going farther. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the right balance is. I'm sure it's very difficult. Yeah, my whole thing and, and the issue that I have with it stems more from just the the technical aspect. The technical p- part of this comic is for me why it 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 just seems so so inconsistent at times. And that seems like the part that you should be able to get, you know, that should be the easy part. The same artist, the same writer, the, you know, the same creative, just get the same creative team. Yeah. And if you need to skip a month to keep it, the same creative team together to give a consistency of product, then do that. Um, or, or get a, you know, get Siren tormenting, skip a couple issues, bring in a fill in artist for two issues and get Tyrion, uh, Siren Torme working you know, a couple issues ahead to give him that leeway so he can do six issues in a row. Um, but it's the technical aspects of it that are inconsistent that, that drives me crazy. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Uh, Future State Gotham number 14, written by Dennis Culver. Art is by Giannis Milono, Giannis and Jeffo. Cover by Simone DeMeo, variant cover by Mike Bowden and Rex Locus. Uh, there is a backup here. Once again, we're reprinting a story from Batman Black and White that's less than a year old. Uh, but at least it's a fantastically written and illustrated issue. It's written by uh, Tim Seeley, gorgeous art by uh, Juan Ferreira. And it, it ties in because it's a story about Batman 666, which we saw Batman 666 show up last issue in this uh, in this uh, uh, Future State Gotham. And for those not familiar, Batman 666 is basically a future version of Damian Wayne who went to hell to look for his dad, uh, didn't find him and ended up getting trapped there and eventually became kind of this evil version of, of Batman. So we've got that version of Batman. 
We've got Jace Fox, Batman. We've got, remember, because this is Future State, we've got the regular Bruce Wayne, who everybody thought was dead in Future State, version of Batman. And we also have Hush, who we find out bought at some point an authentic Batman costume with utility belt and also had plastic surgery to make himself look like Bruce Wayne. He's Batman as well. So you got a lot of Batman in this issue. Um, and it's a little too much. It's, it's Batman at war part two, which is uh, the story, uh, the title. And I don't know it, it's not really working that well for me. I got to be honest. I feel like, um, once again, I have to ask the question, who is this book for? Um, they, they sort of have completely forgotten or put aside the fact that, yeah, this world's never going to exist because uh, future state's never going to come to pass. But forget about all that. Instead, we have a thousand Batman and Nightwing. Oh, I forgot about Nightwing. Nightwing is also, Dick Grayson has also become a version of Batman with this weird sort of tiara with bat ears on it and still wears the Nightwing mask. And he's all hopped up on brain, which is the mental version of venom, the venom series uh, serum. Um, He's a Batman also. So if you can keep that all straight, then yeah, maybe this title's for you, but um, I don't know. This is another one where it alternates between, uh, you know, one or two good issues and then, you know, a couple bad issues I still want it to be colored. Maybe it doesn't suit these particular artists. Maybe their art style is is better suited to be black and white. That very well might be the case because their style sort of anime style. Um, but th- the thing is, it's like if you're going for an uh, you know an anime aesthetic or a manga aesthetic, then shouldn't you be telling a manga style story? And maybe this is. I granted, I haven't read a lot of manga. Um, but it doesn't feel like a manga story. It sort of feels like uh, a regular DC superhero story, but kind of dialed up to fit, like two stories, two titles, two volumes mashed up together because there's so much going on. Um, so, you know, again, the, the art style doesn't particularly fit it, especially when it's characters that we recognize. I mean, that, that's part of the fun, seeing these different versions of, characters, you know, whether it's the second Joker or, um, you know, the future version of Punchline or Harley Quinn or, or whatever, that that's part of the fun of it. But if you're going to do something new and have it be black and white and have it be told in the future, then you should be doing it with new characters. It's like DC's trying to have its cake and eat it too. I mean, at the end of the day, we know why. We know it's called Future State Gotham. We know why it stars Batman because that's what sells. But yet they're trying to capture the people who like manga by doing it black and white with manga style art. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, it's kind of like, um, kind of like Superman, son of Kal-El and, or Batgirls, for example, that we talked about, or uh, even Jurassic League. Right? It's a, it seems to be a running theme this week. It's like DC editorial doesn't know or can't make a decision on what it wants this title to be because there's any number of directions it could go and be successful, but it's like that nobody will make a decision and pick a direction and commit to it. And so it ends up trying to be all these different things. So rather than doing one thing really, really well, it tries to do three or four things and it doesn't do any of them particularly well. So I don't know. What, what do you, what do you think Rocky? Cause I know 
you you kind of weren't even reading this for a while, or or, or you were kind of skim reading it. Yeah, I, I was skim reading it, and and I'm a, I'm exactly like you when I when I skim read this one. Uh, I actually was taken aback. I don't know how you can skim read this and even know anything that's going on. It's so convoluted. Oh, oh granted, but what 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 stood out when I skim read it was how many different Batman there were. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, when I when I made notes for it, I just said, okay, uh, we got real, we got Bruce Wayne Batman, we got Hush's Batman, we got Chase Fox's Batman, we got Dick Grayson as Batman, and we got Damien as Batman six 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 six. That's five Batman, and then we got uh, Oracle, we got Barbara Gordon as the new Nightwing slash Oracle, and. Uh, we got, uh, I'm, yeah, and for for some reason, I guess Batman six 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 over over basically defeated the 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 magistrate at the beginning of this issue. So, I guess if Future State w- would would have continued, are we to understand that in Batman that in Future State, ultimately Damien would have come back from hell and defeated the magistrate, and then Gotham would have become a hell, and then the hell that Gotham would become would lead in to that really good short story that we got at the end here that was essentially a reprint uh, that was uh, of, of, of basically Damien uh, having a meeting the devil. The, the executive game is essentially the story written by Tim Seeley, one of Tim Seeley's best short stories, uh, where, where Damien literally meets up with the devil in Gotham City and... Uh, and uh, ultimately ends with the an, an allegory or an illusion of the Joker coming back, and it's very well done. So it, it's I'm 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 a little unclear if it was just if they're just using this the executive game this short story by Tim Silly with Damien coming back talking with the devil in the executive suite is that just simply was that simply to fill up space or is it actually maybe related and is that is that what Future State would have come after? You know, at the end of this story of Future State. Either way, um, what a I gotta say that if 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 uh, if it wasn't for the plans being upset with with AT and T taking over DC or whatever, would Future State? I mean, if this was the end of Future State, if this story was what Future State was intended to be with this hush and these five different Batman, this is a mess. This is a mess. I mean, if I mean, if DC is experimenting with manga style because it, we it's been uh, a popular part of a uh, pop culture debate about the popularity of manga comics versus and how they're outselling t- traditional American comic books, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and looking at the, the the numbers and the stats and everything. Well, if that's the case, well then DC, if you're going to have an open mind about it and experiment with any anything approaching a manga style type of comic book. Was this it? And if it was, shame on you, because this is not the way to do it. Yeah, it really, really doesn't work. So let's move on. Uh, shouldn't take us too long to review this one. It's uh, DC Pride Tim Drake Special. Uh, we've got three stories. They're all written by Megan Fitzmartin, which I want to apologize because I think when we were talking about Tim Drake in the Pride Special, and we mentioned the writer that had been writing a lot of Tim Drake previously – we said it was Megan Fitzpatrick, Fitzgerald or Fitzpatrick. Maybe yeah, I said Fitzpatrick. Yeah. That would have yeah, been my yeah. fault because I think you yeah, asked me. So. Well, I couldn't even remember her name. So at least you got the first one and a half of it right. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure she gets it all the time and I'm, I'm sure it's never not annoying. So apologies for getting the name wrong. It's Megan 
Fitzmartin, who clearly has a favorite DC character, and it's clearly uh, Tim Drake. And uh, I'm totally fine with that because Tim Drake's my favorite, um, my favorite Robin as well. So the first story she writes is some of our parts. The art is by Bellin Ortega, colors by Orlando Alejandro Sanchez, and letters by Pat Brosso. This is a three-part story that appeared in three issues of Batman Urban Legends, all presented here together for the first time. It shows the first date with Bernard. It shows him realizing that he's bisexual. So that's the first story. The second story, Happy Holidays, again, written by Megan Fitzmartin. We have uh, Alberto Jimenez Albuquerque as the artist, Nick Filardi on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. This is a holiday story. It appeared in uh, the last DC holiday special. Um, uh, Tim Drake and and Bruce story, Nightwing's there as well. It's a very heartfelt story about can Bruce be happy? Uh, Again, Tim Drake having just you know, made this realization in the pages of Batman urban legends about his sexuality and wanting to connect with Bruce and, uh, and that sort of thing. So again, a reprint. And then the final story, the elephant in the room is actually a new story also written by Megan Fitzmartin, Bellin Ortega, the artist, Luis Guerrero on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. And this is a chance for, um, for Tim to sort of team up with some of his, um, justice league, uh, teammates that he hasn't seen in a while. Um, and sort of, I don't want to say come out to them, but kind of show them who he is now, where he is now. Uh, specifically, Stephanie Brown, who was his girlfriend in his uh, title back in the 90s. That's the thing that a lot of people who, who may not want Tim Drake to be bisexual might point to. Well, how can he be, uh, you know, going out with a guy when he went out with Stephanie Brown? Well, you know, bisexual means both, right? So, uh, you know, he there's some good character moments here from uh, from Megan where she's, having Tim talk to Stephanie and say, yeah, you know, there was always a part of me that, you know, didn't feel as close to you as maybe I should have. And it was because I wasn't being true to myself. And, you know, it's sort of tropey in a lot of ways, but also, you know, there's some truth behind that. We hear so many people who discover their sexuality a little little later in life that say things like that. They, something didn't feel quite right. Couldn't put my finger on it, that sort of thing. So it's great to, to see this and it provides context for Tim moving forward as he gives, uh, kind of a, a status update, if you will, to uh, these former teammates. Impulse is there. Uh, Connell is there. Stephanie Brown, as I mentioned, spoilers there. And then uh, Cassandra Kane. So I thought it worked pretty well. And it ends with uh, the little blurb. See Tim Drake next in DC Crisis, Young Justice number one on sale, 6-21-22. So uh, I, I talked before when we covered the Pride about just taking or needing a set of some time to sort of reorient my mind into this sort of new uh, identity of who Tim Drake is. Um, But I like that these are all presented together in one volume because one, one thing it does really, really well, it has this throughput of uh, plot thread that Megan Fitzmartin kicks the the first story off with the, the first of the three part that appeared in Batman urban legends about Tim really feeling lost in a lot of ways and not not knowing what he wants to do. I mean, here's this brilliant guy, right? Was always a genius, was always pushing himself academically in, in high school, you know, built the, all the back computers and all the technology and whatever. And then he drops out of college, you know, feels a little bit lost. And I, I think there's a lot of young people um, or people around his age, early 20s and whatnot, who can relate to that. So uh, I like the voice that Megan Fitzmartin gives to Tim Drake. I've said that f- from from the beginning when she started writing him. And I, I think this will work. I think this, um, I think Tim Drake fans will, um, will appreciate this. I liked it. 
I'm a Tim Drake fan. Uh, I would have liked a little more new material. Uh, I didn't realize when I first started reading it that um, that it was re- the first two stories were reprints. I mean, I about three pages in, I'm like, I've read this before. Um, but when I saw the solicit, I didn't, and I saw the preview copy, I didn't realize. Um, but the, the new story added a lot too. So uh, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Anything to add? Uh, not really. I um, I'm always I'm always up to in in my old conservative ways. I'm always being educated about uh, this uh, homosexuality and bisexuality angle uh, because I would have looked at this and thought, well, you know, a heterosexual wouldn't have used the excuse that, well, you know, I feel a little bit lost right now. And uh, I, I'm dating a girl, and then I suddenly the the relationship goes awry, and uh, well, then it, well, okay. The, the implication there seems to be that Tim Drake seemed a little bit lost because he was just discovering that he was bisexual. What does that have to do with him quitting college? What did that? What does this have to do with him? I, I'm not quite getting the whole the whole angsty thing, uh, uh, but that's my. I, I guess what I'm getting at is that. If this, I guess that he, this, we're told that he's bisexual, not gay. If you're discovering that you're actually gay and you're, you don't have any attraction toward girls, that's one thing, but he's attracted to both. So I'm not sure what his issue was. So he's attracted to both. Most people, if you go, if you're heterosexual and you go from girl to girl or boy to boy, you, you don't, you don't think of attributing your problems to your dating life. And yet he does. So I don't, um, he, he's attracted to both sexes. So. I'm, I'm not really sure this, this seems, um, I mean, I, th- I don't really see the story here, but, uh, uh, and maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not making a, lo- a lot of sense and that's on me, but I just, I just, uh, this is no, something. I I, yeah. I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, and it may be that you, you know, maybe your life was planned out or maybe you knew exactly what you were doing. I, I relate to it because in my early twenties, I didn't know what the hell I was doing either. So the fact that he's, bisexual, it's not, you know, it's not anything sort of physical that's wrong, you know, that's wrong with him. It's just, he's at a place in his life because of everything he's gone through. And he said, he says this in the story. He's, he says it when he talks to Stephanie Brown in that new story uh, at the end, you know, he tells her all this. Yeah. I, I had pushed myself in high school. You know, I was dealing with, you know, this big family, you know, he uses that word family. He's talking about the bat family and all the uh, responsibilities of being a hero and all that. And his, his father being, you know, hero worshiping Batman and then finding out he was Robin and losing his mind. He's talking about all that stuff that he went through in his teenage years, right? All these expectations, all that kind of stuff. He was expected to go to college. He's expected to do all that stuff, right? Like all the reasons that you could feel lost. I mean, I didn't have the added portion of I'm lost in my early twenties. I don't know what I want to do with my life and my career and what, you know, what I'm doing and, change my major like i don't know every week it felt like uh so you know i felt lost just dealing with that normal stuff right he's got that normal stuff plus he's got the hero stuff plus he's realizing that hey i might not be heterosexual again he's he's trying to figure it out he am i only attracted to girls am i only attracted to guys am i attracted to both it's just one more uh thing he has to carry Right. So it's not that, oh, my God, I'm 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 going from guy to girl to guy to girl or I'm going from girl to girl to girl to girl. It's it's not about that. It's about he's got this other part. He's lived his whole life with himself, just like everybody does day in, day out, same face in the mirror, same person. And you think you have this 
picture in your mind of who you are. And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, who I thought I was might not be who I really am. There's this other part of me. So now there's all this upheaval. This is, again, this is my interpretation. And maybe, yeah. again, I can relate to it. Well, more I, I, I think you're I right. Some stuff like yeah. that. So I don't think it's necessarily that it was his, uh, you know, sexual identity. It's just it was one more big thing on top of everything else he's going through. And yeah, you I mean, when I say I, I need to reorient my mind in that this is who Tim is, and I even I make the mistake of saying, yeah, I've got to accept the fact that he's bisexual. That's not that's not it. The, the part of it that that I don't want to say it bothers me, but the part of it that I have to kind of like get straight in my head is that we were told all throughout the 90s Robin series that Tim was this guy who had his shit together. Right. Even though he was a young high school kid, he was the smartest one. He was I mean, that's what part of what made him so interesting and, and beloved because he figured out who Batman was. You know, yeah. he didn't have the kind of the. um the the drawbacks or the negatives that Dick Grayson or uh, um, or Jason Todd had in losing their parents and he still had his mom and dad and so it was just like he was like this this thing to strive for you know kind of up on this pedestal of man wouldn't it be cool to be the Tim Drake version of Robin because he's the smartest guy and he's a superhero and he's he's all these things right and now all of a sudden we're told well man he really didn't have it all together it's like seeing your Hero has feet of clay. I mean, he hasn't gone to that point because he hasn't done anything that, you know, you consider, uh, you know, making poor choices out of malice or greed or some kind of negative personality trait. He's just sort of lost. And so it's like, wait, this guy that I looked up to turns out to not be so, so great, you know? And I think that's, that's the interesting part about the story that Megan Fitzmartin is telling here and that DC is telling because I think a lot of people they look at Tim Drake and they saw him as like this thing to aspire to and you find out no he's not he's not so perfect after all uh, and that, to me that's what's what's interesting that he's yeah. now it's a story of this guy that you thought you knew and again even even for it's the same story for himself he thought he knew himself now he's got to rediscover himself that's what's interesting to me and that's my take on it anyway yeah yeah and and you know just uh I'm happy because I would think that if you're, you know, since he, he swings both ways, I mean, he could, you know, there's a lot of attractive superheroes in the DC universe. He's got more options now. So he's got, yeah. you know, he's got, he's got, he's got a reason to be much more happy because, you know, whatever floats his boat. I mean, there's all kinds of options there. So, yeah, I mean, why isn't John going out with him instead of Jay? <laughs> exactly. Why not? I mean, uh, I mean, I, there, there's a part of me that, you know, they're going to, they, they, DC would never do this, but it would seem to me that, I mean, how, how many of us actually stay with our first our first date, our first love. I mean, come on. So, I mean, Jay Nakamura and, and uh, John Kander are destined to break up. I mean, Tim Drake and, and uh, you know, Bernard are destined, guaranteed to break up. You'd never stay with your first one ever. Of course not. Yeah, You're not come insane. on, DC. Give, us the, give yeah. us the true world's finest. Tim Drake uh, and John exactly. I mean, no, I, I figure that's that's got to be on the horizon. And uh, plus, if they're going to be true to form here, and they are in fact bisexual. Well, then we better see some same-sex relationships too coming up for Tim Drake and John Kent, because after all, they're bisexual. Uh, and I still want John Kent to get together with Satin Girl because they never did do the nasty. All they did was kiss. And uh, mind you, that's all. You know, you know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm putting that out there. I mean, you, you gotta remember if it's bi, we, that means you, you got to enjoy both. So, yeah. I mean, hey, if, if you're gonna do it for, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna 
cater to both audiences, then cater to both audiences. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I probably won't be too. It probably won't be too long before we'll get the triangle, right? Where like maybe yeah. it's maybe it's John, maybe it's Tim. Like yeah. Tim's dating Bernard, but some he's attracted to some girl, and he's got he can't he can't decide. Yeah. You know, should I yeah. should I go out with this girl? Should I be going out with Bernard? You yeah. know. But, I want I want Jay I want Jay Nakam, Nakamura to say you know John I noticed that you're going to the 31st century quite a bit lately is there something I should know <laughs> um, I don't know uh, actually one one of the things I the first thing I thought when Jay I didn't mention this but the first thing I thought when I saw Jay without his mask uh, and it said the nightmare begins is I wonder if they're going to kill him yeah. <laughs> yeah and that you know because you got to admit that John is a pretty empathetic hero yeah um, and he doesn't seem to really lose his he doesn't seem to lose it. You know, you don't, you don't ever worry about John going Damien, Damien Wayne style, right. Killing exactly. people or anything like that. But yeah. maybe if he loses Jay, that, that would be a rough lesson for him to learn early on. It is. I, and uh, it could anyway, happen. You never know. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, you'll have much more to say about this than I will. It's Sandman universe, nightmare country. James Tynan is the writer. Lissandro Esterin as the artist, Patricio Del Pesce on color, Simon Bolin on letters. And then there's a, a sequence, The Dreaming, pages 14 to 17, with guest artist Francesco Francavilla. What do you think? Uh, I'm really enjoying this series. Uh, and I and I come into this series being very Sandman ignorant. So in, in my view, I say with a degree of uh, uh, bias here that if I can understand what's going on, I'm pretty sure anybody can. And uh, like I say, I, I really enjoy this. I uh, uh, We got the agony and the ecstasy who are they're they're working for somebody that wants to control the nightmares and this character called the corinthian this character called the corinthian is somebody who exists between the dream king and the and the forgotten and the forgotten dream so if you think of there's a there's a there's a dream king that controls he creates nightmares and dreams to help us learn about ourselves because we learn things about ourselves in our dreams and our nightmares and then we have our forgotten dreams what we forget about and in between we have the shores of night and um and and the Corinthian this lead character he he walks along the shores of night so to speak because that's this comic book speaks in that kind of metaphor. And that's what I like about it. Cause I, I've said before, I'm a, a broken record. I'm a sucker for good metaphor. And this is just ripe with it. And I really like it, but somebody is screwing up the nightmares. Somebody is utilizing the nightmares. And, and this, this character, this lead character, this Madison Flynn is a character that seems to have the, uh, seems to have the ability of upsetting this person who's trying to this, there's this malevolent force who is sending out these these assassins called the Agony and the Ecstasy to kill Madison Flynn because there's something special about Madison Flynn. We don't know what it is yet. We're only at issue three, but it's it's really good. And I just want to give, for those who are fans of Something is Killing the Children, uh, if... Uh, for those who are used to reading Something is Killing the Children, there's a very cinematic feel to Something is Killing the Children. For example, uh, on page eight of this issue three... It, it ends with a cliffhanger. It, it ends with, not a cliffhanger, but it ends with a scene that's very horrific where she sees this blob-like creature. Madison Flynn sees this blob-like creature. And then all of a sudden, just like in a movie, the next page you see, you see the credits. Nightmare Country, Sandman Universe Presents. So there's a cinematic feel to it. And that's exactly what Tinian... Tinian is very much copying his, 
his style that he that works so well for him and brought him brings him so much success in something as killing the children. He's bringing that same sensibilities here to this, and I, I should also note that the artist here, Alessandro Etheren, is 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 in many ways I think trying to hopefully copy some of that some of that eerie tones that we see in something as killing the children. Even the colors are very similar to something as killing the children under Delertho, where I always butcher her name. The artist on um, something's killing the children. Death or Lawerta, whatever. <laughs> My apologies to her, but in any event, this is this is a good series. It's not as good as something is killing the children, but I really, I'm really curious to see where this is going to go. Um, this involves a, a Republican senator who's having an affair with who's having a um, an affair with uh, Madison Flynn's uh, good friend, and he's actually he's a Republican senator, but uh, he seems to be a good guy. He's going to help Madison deal with the nightmares, so. It, it, it sort of challenges our sensibilities because I think we all have preconceptions about Republican senators. We might tend to think of corruption depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on. And, and Tinian here deals with that, but I think he sort of, he challenges our, our expectations and our points of view uh, about these characters. And I think it works really well. I don't know. I, I'm questioning everybody. I'm wondering who's, I'm wondering who is at, uh, everyone's motives here who's who's really the bad guy what's going on i'm really enjoying this and i wish uh, i wish more people would check this out uh because i think it's it's definitely uh, i again it's 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 a worthy mantle to, to the sandman universe and i've i'm unfamiliar with the sandman universe but this corinthian character really really has me going uh, and it really has my interest and this agony and ecstasy characters are the most eerie Awful, uh, scary-looking characters I've seen. They look horrific. Um, the, the ecstasy is has this has this. He he puts the Joker to shame with his smile, and uh, it's it's definitely worth a read if uh, if you guys can pick it up digitally or if you see it at your local shop because I I do think or pick it up as a trade inevitably because this is worth worth a read. Yeah, I'm not a big Sandman guy either. Um, but yeah, this is a lot of fun. I am fascinated by this Republican senator and what his motivations might be we see a meeting with an angel earlier in in the issue um so yeah this is interesting these two psychopath uh, agassi and ecstasy um they're interesting but ultimately the reason i keep coming back to this series is the corinthian and the eyes for teeth visual which is just so both fascinating and horrifying and intriguing uh, all at the same time and uh, maybe the best thing about this particular issue are the three covers. Um, the main cover has the Corinthian holding a, a piece of steak up to his eye on a fork and biting it like you would <laughs> biting it with your mouth, which is crazy. There's a, a Francesco Francavia cover where we see the Corinthian's face hovering over the, the sea of nightmares, which has everything to do with him sitting on the shore and explaining how he travels from the, the world of the dreaming to the, uh, to the real world. And then the final one is kind of this pastiche of a toothpaste ad pedecedent uh, as in possessed is the name of the toothpaste. And uh, it says bloodstained smiles no more. And the Corinthians, they're smiling with all three of his sets of teeth. So, uh, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about sort of the <laughs> ludicrousness, but also, um, the hook that the series has uh, pulls you in for sure. So, uh, okay. Up next again, I'm not sure. I apologize. I don't know why blood syndicate for the second issue in a row doesn't have a credits page. 
There are some credits on the front cover. We know it's written by Jeffrey Thorne. Chris Koss does, I think he's doing the line art along with Juan Castro and then Will Quintana. He's a color artist, so he must be doing the colors. Not exactly sure how it all breaks down. I don't know. If, uh, we've seen in the past that Chris Koss would do layouts and he would have somebody finish over him. So maybe that's what Juan Castro is doing. Again, not sure. Um, but this was one of my favorite books of the week from DC. Tons of action. Uh, a really intriguing story. My only complaint about it, it's the same complaint I had last time. Um, and again, I'm not a person of color, obviously. Jeffrey Thorne is, so maybe he's drawing from personal experience. But there's a lot of slang in this vocabulary. There's a lot of uh, colloquialisms. And while it might work now, you go back and you read some comic books by writers who did that at the time, and it really dates the books. They don't age well at all. And I'm specifically thinking of a lot of early Gary Friedrich Ghostwriter, where there's a lot of groovy and far out man kind of stuff. And it, it's tough to read that stuff now. So, you know, I would hate to see that happen to this because I, I am enjoying what's going on um, as we're getting to know Hannibal, this soldier who was raised in a, a house where his father is a, a preacher, but somewhat hypocritical, um, you know, no flexibility, n no sort of empathy or understanding as a parent. It, it, you know, everything was very rigid being the streets of Dakota that Hannibal grew up on. You kind of joined a gang or got the crap beat out of you. So of course he joined a gang, you know, ended up getting in trouble had people after him, joined the army to sort of get away from it, went to the Middle East, fought in um, multiple tours. I think it was in Afghanistan, um, somewhere in the Middle East. But anyway, ended up becoming Muslim, gaining powers. In this issue, he goes back and tries to talk to his father, and it's clear there's no, no common ground there. And it gives some context for Hannibal. Um, and again, he, he has these powers, ability to manifest these guns. That's interesting. Uh, and then at the end, there's a, a character, and I think we've seen him before like maybe he was in the first issue but i don't recall uh, or maybe he was in a, a, he, he a, was at the end of the first issue yeah you're talking okay. about holocaust holocaust yeah. yeah um what i was gonna say is didn't we see him in a in a, another milestone book before this i feel like we yeah. saw him before last issue even hmm. but maybe i'm misremembering but we anyway have, i don't remember he, but you might yeah. be right yeah but anyway he he is a very powerful character uh can uh, control fire or manifest fire in some way because powers are clearly fire-based. Um, but I love how fast-paced, I love how much action, I love the the stakes that Jeffrey Thorne has established early on. Like, people die in this book. Like, it's not, you know, this isn't for the faint of heart, as it were. Um, so in that way, it's, you know, he, he's really saying something about kind of gang life and violence and, um, you know, the, the, the crime and what's going on in inner cities that where they're sort of cannibalizing their, you know, younger generations. And, and that's, you know, not a good thing. So uh, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this. I, again, I just worry a little bit about the vocabulary uh, and if it's going to age well, but anyway, what were your thoughts, Rocky? I, I enjoy this. The character work here is incredible. Uh, and again, I, I come in here with no preconceived notions or not knowledge of the of the Blood Syndicate from the 1996 milestone line. This is all new to me. Uh, I have uh, reading uh, some other reviews. Uh, your your comments are, are 
are noted about the dialogue is very authentic here. At least I have every reason to believe it's authentic. And this is going to sound really kind of maybe a little bit funny, but I found this easier to understand in parts of the dialogue when I read it out loud to myself. <laughs> and, and I tried to duplicate the, the tones myself. You know, you can, you can, you can imagine for yourself to your, uh, he, uh, to some humorous effect of me trying to sound, you know, like a, like an African-American gangster. But uh, I actually did, I, I thought that, I thought the language is, does sound very authentic and it does work for me. I think, I think it, I think it might age well a little bit better than what you might suspect. Um, uh, but, and having said that, I love this Hannibal character who I, I had to Google this because uh, one thing Jeffrey Thorne does here, I, I had to struggle with the names. I had to be very careful and reread it to get the names. It is Hannibal who is actually the wise son. That's his, actually his superhero name is Wise Son. And Hannibal spent four years in, in the Middle East uh, in the army and he came back a Muslim. And, and uh, Hannibal had an experience in the Middle East where he was confronted by this uh, by this by this female character, deity slash superhero. I'm not sure who she is, uh, but she basically, I'm assuming he got her, his superpowers from her. Uh, and it, it was implied that he was part of an army that maybe was following orders and wiped out a village and she was injured and he ends up surviving and getting these powers. He ultimately ends up converting to Muslim and worshiping Allah uh, which brings him into conflict with his father, who's very Christian. I got the impression his father, I believe, was Christian Orthodox. But there's obviously some religious uh, conflict there. Uh, he makes uh, Hannibal, the character work again here, I think is just great. Hannibal makes the comment to his dad that, uh, you know, if God was ever in our house, how come I had to, how come I had to go to some desert halfway around the world for him to find me? And I thought that was very poignant and very powerful. And it says something about him. And, and he was always looking for some way to fit in. And Hannibal uh, had a, a, a clearly a childhood where he was involved in gangland, gangland activities with the Blue Street Syndicate, where ultimately he, you know, he probably got into trouble more than once, which didn't help his relationship with his mother or his father. Uh, he's got a he's got a son named Hadrian and a and a and a girlfriend who the mother of his son who he's paying child support for for the last four years. He hasn't seen in four, four years. She doesn't even want him to see his son. So he's got child. So he's got some parenting issues and problems. And so uh, Hannibal is very angry. He's bitter. He's pissed off. He's a flawed person. He's got this past. He's got a bad relationship with his father. Meanwhile, he's under pressure from other gang members to pick a side. They're saying, look, just because you got superpowers now, there's a, there's a power vacuum in Dakota City. Icon and Rocket have cleaned up all the drug, drug czars. They've gotten rid of them. There's this power vacuum. And this character named Holocaust is moving in to fill in that gap. And they're basically telling Hannibal, Hannibal's friend, Carlos is, is, Oh, uh, oh, pardon me, his friend Obi, old boy, is telling him, you got to pick a side. And at the end of this issue, uh, it was, it's really amazing. Again, I just love it because um, uh, Hannibal ends up with his friend uh, Obi and they're, they're in, uh, I don't know if Obi was there, but he was at this sort of gang meeting where he's he's thinking about joining a gang and Holocaust shows up and says, no, I'm 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 the guy that's going to be leading leading the gang. You guys got to follow me. If you don't follow me, I'm going to kill you. And Holocaust has no problem wiping them all out. But of course, uh, Hannibal's superpowers are invulnerability and 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 strength, and so he ends up surviving. And so you know that this is we're already by the end of issue two, and we got some pretty good uh, we got some really good build up here. Ultimately, this is going to I'm looking forward to the inevitable confrontation between Hannibal and Holocaust. And 
you know, again, this is this is just really good writing. This is getting right in. I like the language. At first, the language turned me off. The use of the language was frustrating a little bit for me. But it's part of the culture, and it's it feels like this is a, a part of the uh, a, a, a portion of the American landscape that I'm kind of unfamiliar with. But let's be blunt: we see it on TV all the time, so it's not like we're unfamiliar with it. And I like I like the fact that Jeffrey Thorne unapologetically he drops us in it, and he doesn't he doesn't insult our intelli- insult our intelligence. He but he he also doesn't spoon feed us. He lets us get into the world, and it works better here than his efforts in Green Lantern. And I I think that he's learned some things from his lessons in Green Lantern. He's got a lot of mo- characters here with uh, Blood Syndicate, but I think he does a better job handling the character work and 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 the pacing than he did in Green Lantern. And I hope it keeps up because I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Again, the language thing, um, the thing about it is it's so much, it's so into the slang that it, it almost becomes like a parody of it. Like not every black person speaks that way all the time. So that's the part where I'm like, but again, am I the one that should be making that judgment? I don't know. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but (laughs) I mean, I have no idea, but yeah, it, it, Sometimes it's like, it just, it feels a little, like a little bit too much, like, like Jeffrey Thorne's trying a little bit too hard, you know, to make it feel authentic. But again, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm reading into that. But uh, anyway, that does it for uh, the regular books that are out this week. We do have uh, quite a few collections from DC. We've got uh, Catwoman of East End, omnibus hardcover with a beautiful Darwin Cook cover. Aquaman, The Becoming, the entire series is collected, all six issues. Uh, Justice League, Last Ride, trade paperback, which uh, written by Chip Zdarsky, gorgeous art by Mendel, uh, Miguel Mendoca. Really, really recommend that. I didn't hear a lot of people talking about it at the time it came out, but Rocky and I both really, really enjoyed it. Uh, we've got Batman, The Adventure Continues, Season 2, trade paperback. Uh, Midnighter, The Complete Collection, trade paperback. And then uh, Crush and Lobo, that series by Mariko Tamaki, uh, trade paperback. And I will say that the um, the Midnighter trade paperback, it, that's uh, – or uh, yeah, it's a trade paperback, complete collection. That complete collection, it's the 2015 series, uh, DC Rebirth, that uh, written by Steve Orlando that's uh, collected in that, uh, mm. in that trade. So – uh, and I think, yeah, and then there's a poster book as well, DC Poster Portfolio, DC Pride trade paperback, which uh, collects 20 oversized removable posters suitable for print, uh, framing and display. Uh, they're basically the variant covers and the pinups that were in DC Pride 22. So uh, if you enjoyed those pinups, if you enjoyed those variant covers and you want to be able to hang them on your wall, you can pick up that DC Poster Portfolio. So uh, that's going to do it. I, I want to... I, we DC should give a shout out. Yeah, yeah. There, go ahead. There's one more. The there for DC Universe Infinite Digital first. There's uh, Young Justice oh, Targets right. number one, which is uh, which is uh, you know again it's if for fans of Young Justice. I I, I did read uh, this Young Justice Targets Digital first, and it's clear that you you'd benefit much more if you've been watching the Young Justice cartoon because uh, it's uh, it's clearly in that continuity. But it is interesting. It involves multiple, many characters. I think it's well worth the read. For people that are fans of the cartoon, uh, which has gotten, frankly, it's gotten some very good reviews. Uh, on the, uh, 
at, at Warner. So it's uh, it's worth checking out. So uh, inevitably, usually they end up printing it as a comic book at some point, but uh, it's probably worth checking out if you're a Young Justice fan. This is this is the actual Young Justice that when people say they are a fan of Young Justice, I would suggest most of them actually mean this Young Justice, the cartoon especially if they're non-comic book readers, because this is much different than, do not confuse this with Bendis' Young Justice. It's a very, very different iteration. Yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, well, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Don't forget, check out our new Comics Wednesday episode on Wednesday, spoiler-free reviews of Marvel and some of the other independents that are coming out. I do have an interview coming up with another creator on Thursday uh, for an independent book. I'm not going to say who it is. I'll let it be a surprise, but it was a super fun chat. Somebody's been on the show before. Also, yesterday, I had an episode drop about uh, a prose anthology called Generation Wonder, a bunch of short stories by some people who are famous authors, some people who are famous comic book writers who've never actually written prose before, like Sterling Gates and Paul Levitz, uh, but they're fantastic stories. Uh, it's like over 300 pages of stories, anthologies about some really great superheroes, all original characters. There's not going to be, you know, any DC or Marvel or what have you, but definitely worth checking out. So I got to talk to one of the writers who have also edited the anthology, Barry Liga. So I encourage you to check that out. Uh, and I think that's probably going to be it for this week. You got anything coming up, Rocky? You want to tease? Uh, no, it's just, uh, <laughs> I wish, I wish I did. I'm just too busy at work. Uh, I'm busy with summer and renovations and uh, yard work. But uh, who knows? Uh, I will give a shout out. To, I, I will encourage people if they haven't already checked out or check out uh, Trevor uh, uh, Trevor Fernandez Linkevich's uh, Area Fifty One Helix Project. We just did a Kickstarter interview with him to kick off his the Kickstarter campaign for issue number five of that series. So check out that's on the channel and also uh, will be on the Comic Source podcast as well. So beyond that, uh, just uh, happy reading comics, everyone, and have a good week. Yeah, uh, I second that. Uh, good luck to Trevor with his campaign for issue number five. Amazing. He's had four successful campaigns. Two more to go to get this whole series out into the world. He's uh, come a long way in just a year. Uh, and uh, again, our best wishes to Tim Sale, wishing him a speedy recovery for whatever health issues he's having. Certainly. Uh, again, we've lost way too many comic legends recently, and uh, I, I sure hope Tim sale is not going to be added to that list. So again, thanks everybody for listening. Be sure you head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel, comic space, boom, exclamation point, subscribe, like this video, ring the notification bell. So you know, when new content comes out, you guys know how to do it. Uh, conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to be sure not to miss any of the audio only comic source content, just do a search for the comic source on your favorite podcast platform or app, find the comic source, subscribe, and uh, it'll be right there on your smart device to listen to on the subway or in your car or while you're sitting at your desk at work. So we appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. 
Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.